0: Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: He first puts up the post saying that you can reverse type 2 diabetes with this groundbreaking study that we found, ketogenic diet, blah, blah, blah. The very next day, he puts up a post saying that insulin is this driver of infertility. I remember this. So... He recommends a whole food plant-based diet if you are insulin resistant or have high insulin levels. So he's literally just recommended the opposite of the thing that he was talking about the day before to treat the same thing. Type 2 diabetes is a disease of insulin resistance. And the problem with that is not only is it confusing for the, the consumer or the person observing his content and then it gets shared and before you know it, it becomes sort of like the rule is, you know, it's just not it's right. It's very hard
0: to then undo a lot of the damage that is done. That's Drew Harrisburg. And this, and this. is episode 83 of the Plant Proof Podcast. friends, how you doing? It's great to be back here with you again and and to be back into the rhythm of recording these podcasts after the little break that I had, which I explained in the previous episode, which was my first ever solo episode. If you did enjoy that episode, I'd love to know what you thought. I'd love to know if if I'm on the right track with things. For new listeners, by way of background, my name is Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist. I'm currently finishing my master's in nutrition. And really, I'm here to help you break down the science and and make sense of all of the confusion out there surrounding what on earth we should be eating. It's confusing, I know that, but stick with me and... We will together separate fact from fiction and learn how to nourish our body with foods that not only taste delicious, not only tickle our taste buds, but promote longevity. And that's what this show is all about. I want you to be a fly on the wall in conversations that I would ordinarily have. These are conversations that I would have with a friend at a cafe, at a restaurant, or on the phone? The questions that I ask are ones that not only am I interested in, but they're questions that I believe you will be interested in and will add value to your life. We're in this together. And today's episode is no different as I sit down with a very, very good friend of mine, Drew Harrisburg, who you may remember he was previously on the show in episode 62 where he and I talked about his journey following being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 22. In today's exchange, Drew and I cover some territory that I think you will find very interesting after an update on things at his end and a slight sort of summary of our last episode that we did together, we we start to to go through some things that we've seen in the world of nutrition and wellness that people are not talking about. Topics pop up that perhaps others who are are, are not confrontational or not ordinarily confrontational, you know, myself included traditionally wouldn't share uh, in the public domain. And we go over, uh, you know, for example, a terrible study that was recently shared by one of the world's largest doctors on social media, which frankly made some, some really dangerous claims. We talk about the if-it-fits-your-macros approach and this obsession with energy balance and, and, and our concerns with, with that ideology Uh, We talk about whether or not classifying foods as good or bad is something to be worried about. We talk about stigma associated with different types of diabetes. Climate change and a popular author's claim that methane is a myth and, and so forth. Nothing personal, just two mates talking to the science and hopefully bring clarity to a few things that that we've noticed online that seem to be a tad misleading. Throughout the episode, Drew and I refer to quite a few scientific studies. As always, they are in the show notes for you to review and some of them I will actually discuss further in the solo episodes and feature in upcoming blogs as well. As I flesh out some of the learnings to to help you with decisions in your own life and help you make sense of what these studies are truly telling us. All right, let's do this. I'll see you on the other side. Drew Harrisburg, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast. It's good to be back. It actually feels like I was here yesterday. <laughs> yeah. It's flown. The Time has flown. It was actually four or five months ago. Yeah. Because you were on episode 62. Yep. 62, 63. Ooh, <laughs> You're testing okay. me there. It's 62 or 63, but we'll clear that up <laughs> in the in the show notes. But you came on and and shared your story. And at that stage, and, and this is a little bit of background information for anyone who hasn't caught that episode, but at that stage, uh, you'd been through a few different diets. And, and what I found really interesting was you'd embarked on this plant-based stage. And you were sort of, what, four months in? Four but, months, yeah. So you are four months in, but you had some really cool data. And you'd obviously done a lot of research on around nutrition and and, and type 1 diabetes and insulin resistance. And we discussed that in that episode. So uh yeah if if you haven't listened to that episode it probably is a good idea to to go back and listen to that one almost first before today because today what i'm hoping to achieve is we're another 5 months down the track now yeah get get a little bit of an update because i find that transition period to be a really interesting period for people yeah um and i know it was for myself so i'm really really eager to hear yeah. how that's played out for you and of course, you and I, we chat, you know, almost daily. So I'm I'm across the the little tweaks that you've made yeah. and, and what you found. And there's some fascinating things there that I think the listeners will be, you know, very interested to hear yeah. and, and can learn from. So, you know, before we sort of jump into that, what's been going on? How's things, how's, how's, how's life in uh, sunny Bondi? Mate, I, I swear, like, like, it literally feels like I was here yesterday.
1: But, you know, uh, there's been a lot happening. I mean, I did a I did a bloody TED talk, which was cool, and I also spoke at a uh, the world's largest happiness conference, which was a pretty awesome experience. So it was two thousand people in like you know a big theater at the uh, convention center in Darling Harbour. Yeah, it was just like one of those experiences that's so like exhilarating, and I think I've got the bug now. Like I really want to hit the speaking circuit a lot more and sort of dive into that world because you know when you're when you're doing work on Instagram and online you you can reach a lot of people and it's a it's a great feeling but when you're in person and you can really feel the energy in the room and like see people face to face and look them in the eye it's it's a it's a different game
0: altogether so i want to definitely dive into that world a lot more yeah i mean you've got the you know a perfect story to talk about happiness and talk about positivity you know mm. having faced such adversity and then being able to look at it as a positive, which yeah. you know, is what we discussed in the, in the last episode. And it's quite evident through the way that you live your life that, you know, you by no means have let your diagnosis negatively affect your life. And if anything, it's, it's nourished your life. Mm,
1: mm. Yeah. A big part of my, um, my talk was, I guess the theme was adversity as, a, as an amplifier. And I spoke about this in, in the last episode, how, you know, we all face adversity in all different forms and No matter who you are to begin with, it's going to amplify, you know, who you already are and make you more of that. So it was interesting because I got invited to do this TED Talk on like about a week's notice and I was already booked in to do this happiness conference like four days after that. So it was a good opportunity for me to sort of practice my happiness talk on the TED uh, forum, which is really cool. I don't know if everyone knows, but it was actually a TEDx, so independently organized. But the way that it's sort of formatted is I don't think they can have more than 100 people, 100 tickets sold. So it's quite an intimate crowd. And I think people think it's like this big thing where there's a packed arena, but, you know, it's a hundred people and they're really close to you and you can sort of feel as you're going through your talk, you're getting this like instant feedback from the crowd. So it was really, really cool. And then on the complete flip side, the, uh, the happiness conference, you know, 2000 people in this massive arena, lights in your eyes, you know, they're cheering as you come on stage. was so different. But they were so receptive in, in the messaging that I was delivering. Yeah. Both crowds. It just worked so well for both of those sort of crowds. Yeah, it was awesome. Have you, have you done a lot of public speaking like that before? Not on that scale. 2,000 people was, was big. Was it, were, were, what were the nerves doing oh. before that one? Okay. It was, it was a roller coaster. But when I was first asked to do the, the, the conference, immediately I was hit with like butterflies and then that's when I was like, okay, I have to do this because it's the moments that give you butterflies that are the moments that you're going to grow the most, right? Absolutely, and get the you're most out of outside of that. 100. percent. So as soon as I got that butterfly feeling, I was like, okay, I have to do this. I can't say no. So then I obviously accepted the talk. And I, I look, when it comes to organisational skills, I am pathetic. And it was the day of the talk. And it was seven o'clock in the morning. I'm in Bondi. I just had a swim. I was picking up a coffee and I get a call from the organizer of the conference saying, Drew, your tech check was 20 minutes ago. Where are you? So I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to miss my talk. So Priorities, though, right? You always get that swimming. <laughs> yeah, you know, the routine. <laughs> so I panic mode. I just got a new phone. I didn't have Uber, the app yet. So I couldn't call, a, call an Uber. I'm at this cafe. I've missed my tech check. The doors for the conference open at 8.30. It's like 7 o'clock. So, and it's also the rainiest day of the year. So traffic in Sydney is horrific when it rains. Everyone forgets how to drive. But, I mean, this is the, what, what was this
0: called? The happiness. The happiness and its causes. You know, so you, yeah. you, 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 you surely rocked up in a, in a good mood. You didn't let this get to you. No, no, no. So, <laughs> I, so Carly
1: gets me an Uber. I jump in and I'm drinking my coffee. I'm in a panic and the lid comes off, my keep cup. It spills down my shirt. So I'm like, at this point, I'm like, okay, I've missed my tech check. I'm going to miss my actual talk. I'm full of coffee. It can't go any worse. Sounds like you've been tested. It was. It was a test. But the the funny thing was, it took the nerves away because I was like, it can't get worse than this. This is, it's almost laughable. So I just got hit with this wave of like calm and I I got there and I I did my tech check and I made the conference run about 20 minutes late. Like (laughs) it wasn't good. But anyway. I got into the green room and I just felt so calm. And, and I, I almost said to myself, like, to deliver a good talk, which I'd never done in 2000 people, who do I need to be? You know, like, who do I need to be? What are the qualities and traits that I need to have to deliver a good talk? And I just went into character and, and I almost, you know, the fake it till you make it sort of thing. It was, that's what happened. And, and I really felt just so confident when I got out there. So yeah, it was,
0: it was a good experience. It was awesome. I mean, in a, I think it was about 10 or 15 episodes ago, I spoke with the eyes the neurologists, and, and one of the really interesting things that I learned from them, and, and it has to do, I guess, a little bit to do with their parenting, what they do with their kids, is they always encourage their kids to be uncomfortable. Mm. And they were talking about you know, learning and and, and developing as a person, growing as a person. And they they used an example, I think, of their daughter who must only be about 10 or 11 years old. She's already done her entrance exams for university. Incredible, incredibly um, brilliant family, but brilliant kids as well. And they, you know, have thrown her on the stage. And I, I think it's a really good lesson is that, you know, our first instinct is almost to to not do these things. Mm, exactly. But what did you learn from being up there? Like, how, what did you learn from those talks that now you can take into the next ones?
1: So much. You know, it's funny because I grew up on a stage in front of people, you know, when I was pursuing a music career. So I played shows in front of hundreds of people before and it's, you're a lot more vulnerable when it's just you and a guitar, you're singing, you know, an acoustic session. So I'm used to that feeling of being vulnerable or, or in my, you know, a little bit uncomfortable. But I, I didn't think it would translate so well to, to speaking. It felt like it just felt like I was back on stage performing just a different art. So I, I feel like I'll definitely bring that that idea of um, that the fake it till you make it idea <laughs> where really, you know, we tell ourselves these stories about who we are. You know, like I'm a confident person. I'm a shy person. You're nothing, you're a canvas. You are whatever you decide to be. You know, you can tell yourself any story you want. And the story that I told myself on that day was I'm a confident person. I'm going I know my content. I have an important message to share, and I'm just going to go out there and deliver it.
0: Because the people watching me and listening to me, they don't know. They've never seen me speak before. It's so true, but often like the default is the doubt. Yes. You know, the default is to second guess. Yeah. Do I know the content well enough, you know, and you start to second guess when you're right, like, you know, you know your story and you know your content more than, you know, the people that you're talking to most of yeah. the time anyway. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, what's the worst that can happen?
1: What's the worst that can happen? You're talking to people. I know how to hold a conversation. If something goes wrong, I'll talk my way out of it. <laughs> like, It can't go that bad. And even if it does, you're still going to learn something. Yeah, that's right. You
0: know, it's like still going to wake up the next morning, go for a swim at Bondi, <laughs> or, or whatever your morning. Practice <laughs> I haven't missed is. a day in in years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you know, you what you just said before as well speaks to what I've sort of felt lately. I've been doing those retreats in mm. in Bali, and and one of the biggest, I guess, benefits from my personal end, you know, selfishly, one of the benefits for me is just to connect with people. Yeah. In person, yeah, because you do it online. You know, you you you. I connect with a lot of people online, and it's 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 a fleeting connection a lot of the time. Yeah, and 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 it can be multitasking, so it's not right. Like you're you're really there, Mm. but sort of when you can, when when you can get the opportunity to connect with people in real life, I think it's important, particularly in 2019. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. And I've noticed on your Instagram, you're. You, you engage really well with people who reach out to you. You know, you share messages when, when you receive them, so you obviously care. But admit, when you're in person with you know face to face, it's just there's an energy that you don't have when you're sitting in a cafe reading DMs. Like it's just, it's, yeah, it's, this, I mean, it's completely different. It is, it is. So I'm definitely going to chase that, and I know that you're enjoying that too, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, got another one coming up in October. I'm, I wanted to come to, come to that. that. Yeah, you're gonna have to come to the next one. I'll come to the next 20, one. For sure. Twenty twenty. Uh, what is it? Twenty twenty next year. Yeah. I'll put will pencil it in now for sure. So what else is what else has been happening, mate? What's what's what else been happening in Drew's life since last time we connected? So I well I got
1: flooded with with messages and support from our last podcast, which really gave me sort of a second wind or, or a bigger push to you know commit even further to the educating and. You know, I've just sort of redid my website a little bit. I've been consulting online and, and, again, having these sort of, I guess, face-to-face, but through through like a Skype or a Zoom call. Um, so what sort of people have been reaching out to you? So a lot of diabetics, um, type 1 and type 2, people just with insulin resistance. Most of the, the message, well, there's been a whole sort of array of messages, but a lot of them have been people who are in the position that I was in four months ago or five months ago when I was like sort of keto phase. Well, actually that's even further now, but, and they're basically saying, I'm experiencing exactly what you've experienced. How do I transition? Like I want to make the change. They're they're very plant curious. Like they, they want to, they want to embrace the idea that you can eat carbohydrates and still be insulin sensitive and still manage diabetes
0: really well, if not better. But they're scared. It's it's nice to hear though that you know people are, are starting to open up to that idea because you know traditionally the advice for people with diabetes has been very much to just limit carbohydrates and and yeah. to demonise carbohydrates as as the cause mm. of diabetes. You yeah, know, which is what we spoke about in the in the in the last episode, which is is not the truth. But no. so these people that are coming. To you, yeah, and they sort of have gone through that same experience as you. They've tried the ketogenic diet, mm. got very insulin resistant. You know, how receptive are they to this idea of changing their diet?
1: There's, there's a lot of fear, man. Honestly, like I said, they're curious and they want to take the leap, but it's kind of you can sense that they're scared and they don't fully trust the system. And and the way I see it is like when it comes to making a change, like we've all got the wings, we just are scared to jump off the cliff and sort of take that leap. And I think that everyone can do it. It's just the practical side of actually transitioning is quite important. So, you know, from my perspective, when I did my transition, I started from a point of, like you said, I was pretty insulin resistant. I was taking quite a lot of insulin, even though I wasn't eating carbohydrates. And I knew that if I were to add carbs back overnight, like huge amounts, that I wouldn't be able to tolerate them. Not because carbs are innately bad, but because I was insulin resistant from the huge amount of fats that I was eating in my diet. So what I did personally, and now what I'm recommending for people to do is to do a slow transition where you slowly add back carbs. I'm talking like 10 grams per meal, like not much. And we're talking whole food. Yes. Whole plant food. Exactly, exactly. Like don't be scared of fruit, don't be scared of starchy vegetables, grains, legumes, all of that. So we add that back in quite slowly. 10, 15 grams per meal until you start to get that sensitivity back. But the, the key in all of this is that you really do have to reduce your fat intake. And if you just add carbs back on top of a high-fat diet, you're going to get yourself into trouble because you don't have this metabolic flexibility to be able to burn both at the same time. It's really like it's chaos for your physiology. that Your body doesn't know how to deal with it. So I removed my fats very low, like almost overnight. So I cut out all animal products, stopped cooking with oils, I was—we spoke about this last time—but I was eating like coconut oil out of the jar, coconut butter. So I had to ditch all that. Well, you were doing—you were doing ketogenic to the yeah. nth degree. Yes, but imagine—imagine <laughs> imagine then adding a bowl of fruit or oats. Oh, to that. on top yeah. of that. So that's yeah. the problem. So that's it's a recipe for disaster. It really is. So it's remove the fat to about fifteen percent of total calories. That seems to be the, the threshold or the, or the sweet spot. And what I've figured out
0: since then is the lower I go with my mm. fat intake, the more sensitive I become to Which, to which is in line with, you know, the randomized controlled trials that Neil Barnard and his yep. group and, and others have done is getting that fat right down. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I was, in, in the beginning, I was
1: about 20% fat and I was getting good results. Like even when we spoke, my insulin to carb ratio was about one unit of insulin for, on a, on a really good day, like 25 to 30 grams of carbohydrate. Yeah, And I thought that was the best I could do. But I've recently reduced it even further, my fat intake, and my sensitivity is beyond.
0: So I've got a question on that because I, re- I recall that when we were catching up, we spoke about the fats in your diet and we spoke about them as a as a way to help you keep your overall calories at a level where you were going to maintain your body weight as yeah. well, right? So have you been able to taper off the fat a little bit more as you've You've become better, better able to digest very high fiber foods. Yeah, yeah, you nailed
1: it. So, the 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 biggest barrier or hurdle that I was facing in the beginning was I'd been paleo for seven years. I hadn't eaten grains or legumes. So, not only did I have like
0: a fear, a psychological phobia of carbohydrates. I remember that. I yeah. mean, we we spoke with Doctor B. Remember, yes, we, we we had like a group chat going, and you were you were, I guess, fearful I of adding some of these back into your diet. And it was it was because of the whole lectin story,
1: which you've spoken about about Mister Gundry, who's obviously made a good career out of that
0: story. But lectin shield, yeah, like, <laughs> should probably shouldn't be plugging that product. But no, no. Anyway, that's a freebie, Doctor Gundry. Yeah, exactly. That's the last freebie. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> I added back in legumes and and grains, and I I guess I wasn't at a at a stage where I could digest them very well. Obviously, my my microbiome was not equipped to mm-hmm. to handle. Chickpeas and beans and lentils and these foods I hadn't had in years. So for the first couple months, I was in a lot of discomfort, like gastric, like bloating. I, I really was uncomfortable, but I knew that I had to push through. Actually, thankfully, listened to Dr. B's podcast about how your microbiome adapts and changes, and I knew that if I just waited out, eventually, I'm going to, I guess get these good bacteria that are going to help me digest those foods. And, and now I have zero symptoms when it comes to eating that sort of food. So I've, I've been able to reduce the fat intake and bump up all of my carbohydrates and all the fiber without any symptoms of, of discomfort or bloating
0: or anything. So, so what's the day uh, on Drew's plate sort of look like now that you've got that fat down, you've got lots of high fiber foods? I mean, it's different uh, every day, but
1: basically I, I usually... I still like to fast in the morning. So I'll do my activity, swim, coffee, take the dog out, go to the gym, fasted. And then after that, I'll either have like a bowl of oats with sort of like buckwheat, blueberries, banana. Um, and I used to add a lot of like hemp, chia, flax, peanut butter, sprinkled nuts on top. But even those sources, even though they're healthy plant sources of fats, they were interfering with my insulin sensitivity. And I was having these sort of highs after that meal. So I recently removed those and just kept the carbs in there and I'm just handling it beautifully. In fact, my instant to carb ratio now is like, it's, it's amazing. It's yesterday and, and the few days before that was about 1 to 40. Wow. 1 gosh. to 40, one to which 40. I've last, never experienced. Last episode, was it around 1 to 15 or 1 it to 20? It was one to, 20 1 to 20 typically. And then after a workout when I'm most instant sensitive, yeah. it was 1 to 30. And I was like blown away with 1 to 30. But now, mate, I'm, I'm able to eat carbs. At any time of the day, like not even just after a workout, literally any time of the day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, I can go for it. I'm giving very small amounts of insulin for the amount of carbohydrate that I'm eating. Which, yeah, I'm still, I still can't believe I'm getting improvements. Nine months in, I thought, surely I've made all the gains that I could. But I'm still getting these improvements. And and I think the, the real important part of it is, is that I've, you know, I'm respecting the fact that that fats and carbs they don't coexist very well when it comes to insulin sensitivity and diabetes. They really are, you know, m- my new philosophy is basically eat carbs with carbs, eat fats with fats. So I save my, and you know, to, to follow on from my day day of eating, I'll save like avocado, hemp seeds, you know, nuts and seeds and stuff for when I'm having like a green salad with, with non-starchy, non-carbohydrate rich vegetables. <laughs> that seems to work better because then I can eat the fats I'm not going to add carbs into the system, which will spike my blood sugar, and then I'll save the carbs for other meals where I can have sort like a Buddha bowl for
0: dinner, so like brown rice, sweet potato, tempeh. You know, that that makes sense. And you do you supplement with a a, an omega three, like a DHA? Yeah, you you put me onto one. Yeah, the algae oil. I use that. I still use a B12. So do you
1: take that at any certain time throughout the day, or? No, nah, that that I see, it seems to be just whenever I can remember. Yeah. I can't see is that. It's such a minuscule amount. It's what, two grams of, yeah. sort of it's not going to make a big difference. But it's been incredible. And then I'm I'm now speaking to people um, online about this and doing these consultations. And I'm telling them what I've been doing and they, they're implementing it for themselves. And just like clockwork, they're getting the same results that I was, you know, less insulin. My basal insulin, which is that long acting sort of background yep. insulin, has reduced 50%. Since I finished my keto phase.
0: So do, do you I mean your your family are, are, are doctors, but mm. do you have a regular doctor that you also see or anyone that you see um, who, you know, prescribes medication, insulin? I don't.
1: I should have an endocrinologist. All people with diabetes should. I've struggled to find one that aligns with my beliefs and my philosophies, mm. but it's not their fault,
0: it's mine because I'm always changing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, so. I mean my question was geared towards whether if you were what they were you know, what their reaction would be because you've got such an interesting case study mm. that is very different to, you know, what the, you know, diabetic associations, the the, the standard guidelines mm. um, for food are. So I'm interested too, mate. I I, I want to go see one
1: or a couple and sort of feel what's out there and see how the, if they're receptive or not. I know that the science is catching up though when it comes to type 1 diabetes and, and even type 2. I was recently at a conference uh, this Diabetes Congress, and there was this you know, awesome study where they presented basically showing that if you give somebody a, a given amount of carbohydrates on its own and then measure the glucose curve and insulin needed, it's totally normal and it's, it's, it's a nice normal response. If you then give that exact same amount of carbohydrate with fat and protein, you need 65% more insulin to get the job done and the glucose curve is not normal anymore. It actually has this like delayed spike. So like they, I mean, unfortunately, in the study design, they used a pizza and a pasta or something as, as the food, which I don't recommend people eat. But it's like they showed that when you eat that pizza, you, you your blood sugar starts to look like a normal curve. So it'll rise sort of as you eat it, start to come down, and then it'll just bounce up like six hours later. And I know when I was first diagnosed, I used to eat pizza and pasta like many years ago. And I'd have it for dinner, I'd go to bed, my blood sugar would be normal, and then I'd wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning with my blood sugar in the 20s. And I didn't know why, and I blamed the the carbohydrates and the pizza. But it turns out it wasn't. It's the fats and protein that actually have an insulin response themselves, so you need way more insulin to get that done, which again is another reason why it makes sense to save your carbs with your carbs, eat your fats with your fats. You know, So that's... It's been a big lesson for me, uh, and I'm still,
0: still, like I said, getting these benefits as we go on now. You mentioned before that some of the people that are, are contacting you are, are sort of coming from a position of fear to mm. change their diet, right? And you know, I think about that, and it, I put myself in their shoes, and it it makes sense because so much of the credible recommendations, right, the diabetic associations, all the recommendations, are not. Diets that are super super low fat, right? In fact, if you look at the literature and, and you look at sort of ketogenic diets that compare a ketogenic diet versus an association diet, mm. one of the problems with those studies is that yes, the high the ketogenic diet is high fat, but they're not truly comparing it to a low fat diet. It's a very intermediary type diet. Right. The, the fat content usually, from what I've seen, is like
1: thirty percent. Yeah, that's not low fat. Like you, you, you really need to be pushing it to what I think that 15%, even 10%. But then it comes down to, again, sustainability of your diet. Can you keep that up forever? You know, some people, you know, I was, I was complaining to you in the beginning a lot about I lost a lot of weight. Um, when, you, when you cut out animal products, you're cutting out so many calories in one hit. I, I lost a lot of body weight. I got weaker in the gym and I was so concerned. I just didn't realize how much food I could eat and get away with. And, and I think that if you do drop your fats too low and you're not replacing them with carbohydrates, because you've got this fear of carbs,
0: you're at risk of, of probably, you know, becoming underweight. Yeah. So and I mean, awesome. ultimately there's that sort of transition period, like you were talking about where. You you also, most people need to allow their body and their gut microbiome to adjust to be able to tolerate more carbohydrates before you can cut the fats down too much mm. or you'll just be in, in, in such a, a great calorie deficit that you will lose some weight. Exactly. Mind you, you know, for a lot of diabetics out there, if they're overweight, losing a bit of weight is a great thing. Exactly. Because that's going to make you more insulin sensitive. Yes. What's interesting is the only real science out there around truly reversing diabetes and when i say reversing diabetes i probably should make it clearer about reversing insulin resistance and in that scenario i'm talking about type 2 diabetes you know you can't reverse type 1 diabetes we know that there's um, it's an autoimmune condition yep but what's interesting is this definition mm. of what reversing diabetes is and mm. it seems that it can be used rather loosely Mm. Um I know that you and I we we shared a a study. I think the post was by Dr. Mark Hyman. Yeah. Who hats off to Dr. Mark Hyman? He has a a beautifully, you know, big community, very yeah. tightly engaged community. And 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 to be fair, you know, I agree with a lot of the things that he does post. Yes. Um, but there was a a study that was posted. Do you remember this one <laughs> Mate, that I shared? Clearly. Yeah. Clearly. So I, I I think it was the the caption or his caption was something around this being a, a sort of a, a breakthrough once in a century study yep, yep. That, that that found uh, that a ketogenic diet could reverse diabetes yes. and they were looking at patients with type two diabetes yes the study was by a a researcher and her team I think her name was um, Sarah Holberg mm-hmm. and we looked at that study, right, and we looked at the definition of reversal. Mm. Do you remember, mate? It was—it's it was, a mess. It is an absolute
1: mess. <laughs> I th- this is my memory of it. They basically came up with their own definition of reversing diabetes, right? So they—they they admitted somewhere along the line. It was confusing to read. I must admit, it was <laughs> frustrating to to keep seeing this stuff where you, you see these people of influence who should have a duty of care to be sharing credible information and validating the things that they're going to be saying and talking about, and they just you know ignore the facts of, of what is going on. So they, they said, to reverse type 2 diabetes, we can achieve normal blood sugar control, a reduced HbA1c below, I think it was like 6 or something, like 6.5 maybe, so in the, 6.5 in the, course, in the normal yeah. range. But, and there, it was a big but, they left metformin the, the the largest diabetes control drug in the world which lowers hba1c and lowers blood glucose and lowers blood glucose it, it's a hypoglycemic yeah. agent it literally its job is to lower your blood sugar they left that in as one of the variables that they're, they're not going to check like so
0: that was yeah to be clear that was permitted um, reversal could still be seen with the patient still taking metformin, yes. So normal
1: glucose, normal hb one c and the patient is still on metformin, and they classified
0: that as reversing type two diabetes. Mm. And the the really, I guess, interesting thing, mind you, this was published in Nutrients, which is a, a top peer reviewed journal. Yeah. Um, it was a randomised controlled trial. So this just speaks to the fact that you know that we've got these definitions out there about epidemiology or randomised controlled trial, right? Mm. Those are those are blanket definitions. You mm. have to look at every single study in its own on its, in its own yes. right, right? And when you look at this study, yes, okay, published in Nutrients, great journal, randomized <laughs> controlled trial. That's a, that's a great, you know, methodology yeah. that they've used there yeah. to do that. You should be able to look at cause and effect. Yes. But if you look at how they set the study up, their definition of reversal was not truly reversal no. of diabetes. No. And if you dig a little bit deeper, the even more interesting, and this is not, this isn't anything personal here. Mm. Um, I'm just, I feel like we need to comment on this. Because 100%, I feel like the public just believe that everything that's in a journal and there's a randomized controlled trial is to be believed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the researchers, the lead researcher and one of the other researchers are shareholders and owners of a company called Verta Health. Mm. Right, mm. Inverter Health sell packages and programs around reversing type two diabetes. In inverted commas reversing, yeah, yeah. reversing in yeah. type, you know. But if you go to their website uh, where they sell these packages, they even state that they have their own definition of what reversing diabetes is, and within that, there's an asterisk that says metformin is still permitted as a yeah. drug that people can take, yeah. and and reversal is still achieved. There's some there's some real problems when when science like this is getting out. Huge. And then for the the sort of marketing media campaign behind it to see it end up one of guys with millions of followers sharing this. He he it's Dr. Okay. Mike Lyman has seven hundred thousand or something like that yeah. um size community on Facebook yeah. and on Instagram. So when you when you add all this up and and the people that they talk to, we're talking millions of people yeah. who Think that there was a scientific study, which is a breakthrough study. Breakthrough, that was the words. Yeah. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking of the century. Yeah. Right. People are left thinking that the ketogenic diet is reversing diabetes, but it's not. It's not going, it's not reversing the underlying pathology. No,
1: not even close. In fact, you know, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and, you know, think that it was an issue of semantics or or nuance when they come with their wording of, but they knew exactly what they were doing. That's why they they had the asterisks and and the...
0: They set the definition up. They almost made it too easy for us to pick that up on their website because it was so overt, this very flaky definition. Well, that's the legal issue there, isn't (laughs) it? That's their their covering. There was a page dedicated to what our definition of reversal is. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And and really, we spoke about this in the first episode that I did with you. If diabetes, if type 2 diabetes, is a disease characterized by an intolerance to carbohydrates, the only way to truly reverse it and, and see that you've reversed diabetes is to be able to tolerate carbohydrates again, right? Going on a ketogenic diet, removing carbohydrates out of the picture is, again, a Band-Aid solution because you're managing the symptoms. You're not Now, you you have not proved to yourself that you can now tolerate carbohydrates. That would be reversing diabetes. So you have to be able to have normal blood glucose levels uh, normal HbA1c in the presence of carbohydrates, not the absence of carbohydrates. And and I know I've already spoken about this, but I have to drill it home because I'm still getting people arguing with me online about this reversal, you know, through a ketogenic diet. And you, you know what it comes down to? It's have you heard of the competency consciousness model? Yeah. In psychology? Yeah. yeah. So it's basically this model where it's a four-stage model where you're, it's, it's like a learning and skill acquisition model where, I'll give you an example. So let's say you've never ridden a bike before and I, I present you a bike and I say, do you know how to ride a bike? And you say, yeah, of course I know. So you jump on the bike backwards and pedal the wrong way and you fall off, right? And you're like, see, I can ride a bike. Well, no, you're unconsciously incompetent at that that point. You think you can ride a bike. You don't even know that you can't and you truly believe you can.
0: Which another word to describe that could be delusional. Or delusional. Or (laughs) delusional.
1: So then the next day you jump back on the bike. This time you sit the correct way around and you pedal a little bit and then you fall off and you're like, now, you're like, okay, I couldn't ride a bike. I still can't. But now you're consciously incompetent. The next day you jump on again, you spend a bit of time on the bike, and eventually you figure out you can balance and you can do it. You're now consciously competent. And then finally, years later, you can ride effortlessly on this bike. You don't have to think about balancing. You're unconsciously competent, which is, I guess, the end goal. So what I'm seeing online is that these, there are people spreading information and they are at stage one of this model. They're unconsciously incompetent or worse, in this case that we just mentioned, consciously incompetent, yeah. which is scary. When you have a duty of care and a responsibility
0: to share truthful information. Yeah, that's to be honest, I think that's the, that's the most dangerous part of this is oh, that this is coming from people that, you know, are credible. They have credible qualifications. Yes. It's published in a top journal. Yes. It's, yeah, it's not it's right. It's very hard to, to then undo a lot of the damage that is done. Yeah. Right, yeah, we're talking about it here, but this has reached millions of people. Millions of people, and 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 their networks are big too. And then it gets
1: shared, and before you know it, it becomes sort of like the the uh, the the rule is, you know, it's just, you know, and well, the funny thing was, so we saw that post that Mark Hy- is it Mark Hyman, yeah, Doctor Mark, Doctor Mark Hyman. Okay, yeah. so he put this post and up.
0: It, he, he's a, a ten or eleven or twelve time New York bestseller mm. author, like he's. He's made a, a valuable contribution mm. to the space. And like I said before, he, you know, I just want to make it really clear, some of the stuff that he says is brilliant. Well, that's mm. what I was about to and say. And I think he's moving people in the right direction. I agree. I uh, do agree. So, so the very next day, he, puts,
1: so he first puts up the post saying that you can reverse type 2 diabetes with this groundbreaking study that we found, ketogenic diet, blah, blah, blah. The very next day, he puts up a post saying that insulin is this driver of infertility. I remember this. So he recommends a whole food plant-based diet if you are insulin resistant or have high insulin levels. So he's literally just recommended the opposite of the thing that he was talking about the day before to treat the same thing.
0: Yeah, Type 2 diabetes is a disease of insulin resistance. Could be a case of doing too much, I think. Too, too much content and Could be. He, he, he's lost track, I think. Or is it, you know, is is it the this model? The doubt. You know, you never know. It's a, it's a hard one because I do remember that. It was, mm-hmm. a, it, was a, it was a polar opposite message the next day. For the same
1: underlying cause. And yeah. the problem with that is not only is it confusing for the, the consumer or the person observing his content, but I think that he might be confused with,
0: with that part of it. You know, yeah. I mean, the caption sort of led us to believe that there there could be some confusion, yeah. and the whole carbohydrate insulin discussion because there have been so many different theories around it, it can get really confusing. You know, we yeah. broke it down in the last episode. I broke it down with mastering diabetes. That was four and a half hours of talking. Mm. About science. Mm. Yeah. There, there is a lot to, to get through. Obviously, we tried to make it very simple by the end of it. Yeah. One of the things that I think is probably one of the biggest risks that could be overlooked about the ketogenic diet is the cost opportunity
1: mm.
0: of leaving out these foods that we're talking about. Mm. You know, these high fiber foods, which are, you know, legumes, whole grains, which are associated with longevity, lower. Incidence of cardiovascular disease, which is the leading cause of death in Western populations, you know, lower incidence of type two diabetes. Uh-huh. It's crazy, isn't it? Like it's leaving out foods that we know reduce one's chance of developing diabetes in the first place. Yeah, it is. It's 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 ironic and it's sad. And and for me, the
1: turning point because I I mate, I used to believe in this high-fat, low-carb movement. I really did. Because and we, I think we need to be fair. It is still a poten- potential
0: solution to manage the symptoms of type 2 diabetes. Well, I mean, we, it's better than a diet that's sitting in the middle. Yes. Right. At least it gets the blood glucose down. But like we spoke about, what are the long-term... Is it, is it helping with the complications long-term or is it potentially even adding to them? Exactly. And then it's what you just said. It's like you're leaving out this food that is associated with
1: the longest living populations with the least mm-hmm. amount of not just chronic disease, but actually type
0: 2 diabetes. So, and, and I mean, not that this is obviously the, the first thing that someone with diabetes is thinking about, but eating those foods is also reducing your overall environmental footprint. Big. There's a big win in there. It's a big there. one. We can get into that
1: later. hundred percent, man. That's been one for me that I'm super proud of. And there's been other weird like benefits that I found that I wasn't expecting, like my grocery bill, it's so much cheaper. You know, grass-fed beef and eggs
0: and Hang free on, range. But this is—that's a bit of a myth. Let's 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 set this one straight. So most people would say, "Oh, the, you know, plant-based diet or health food. It's so expensive, right?" Tell me what's happened with with your grocery bills. Uh, on, I think it's gone. It's in
1: half, I'd say, probably because I was eating a lot of those products, which, like I said, free-range chicken and eggs and grass-fed beef and you know the bone broth and all that sort of stuff. But now I'm buying my food from my local. I mean, I bump into the markets often at, at Bondi Markets local produce, fresh, organic, my my plastic use has gone down, I bring my own bag, you know, and it's just like the whole experience is so yeah, enjoyable and awesome. so fulfilling, yeah, it's really
0: awesome. Tell me, uh, you know, when you were going through this ketogen- ketogenic phase and no doubt you were, you were listening to a lot of podcasts or reading a lot of books and, and forums and, and blog posts about keto, one of the things that I see come up quite a bit is that proponents of the ketogenic diet will say, oh, it doesn't matter that, because there's, there's there's quite a lot of studies out there showing that as you move to a ketogenic diet, ketogenic diet your the LDL cholesterol will increase. Mm. And a lot of these proponents will say, well, that doesn't matter because HDL increases proportionally. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you'd come across? Yeah. I mean, you hear
1: about that all the time. You'll find a blog post or a podcast to justify any potential negative Mm. biomarker that comes in a blood result. And I found them for myself and I justified them for myself. My LDL went, your LDL went up. Yeah. And did your HDL go up too? Can you remember? My, it was always high, my HDL, yeah. always. So I, I'm not sure exactly how much it went up. But my LDL was, sorry, my total cholesterol was like 6.4, I'm going to say, during my, my high fat phase. So well outside the normal range. Endocrinologist wanted to put me on a statin, you know. It just didn't feel right. And then, yeah, four months into my plant-based diet, my cholesterol is
0: 3.6, mm. you know. It worries me because I read the forums and I read people commenting saying my my LDL shot up and then I see the the, the moderator of the forum or the the author of the blog comment and, mm. and talk about HDL. But I've read a lot of science on HDL yeah. and this is something I've written about in my book. Mm. HDL is really interesting because for years, high HDL, people thought it was a protective yeah. protective against cardiovascular disease. But the more science that comes out, and and they've this is a really interesting part of the science on HDL, they actually created drugs that could increase someone's HDL. Mm. Right. And what they did is they noticed that if they increased someone's HDL, it didn't mm. reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease. Interesting. It didn't reduce it. And then We've also been able to look at people with a genetic mutation who have naturally high HDL. Yeah. Same thing. No greater protection against cardiovascular disease. And what researchers are now starting to hypothesize is that it's not so much the number of HDL, it's not the quantity, Mm -hmm. it's the quality. Mm. And it's how well that HDL is working that is the most important thing. So it's Mm. a really interesting space to look at, but that's something that worries me about the ke- whole ketogenic diet is because people justify a rising LDL based on this rising HDL. Mm. But the science on high HDL, it's not sound. Yeah.
1: That's actually one thing about you that I, I do admire is your willingness to observe and engage and, and I guess take part in a conversation that is so polarizing with your beliefs and your, your ethos. Mm you know for most like i had to unfollow a lot of the people that i used to follow who were high fat proponents cuz it just it was so agonizing for me to read yeah. the content but you seem to just dive in
0: and you know i guess yeah, i like it <laughs> i mean i i what i like is you know i i i like to know if someone almost going back to to what you were saying before like I get tagged in a lot of posts. Mm. You know, I get tagged in a lot of posts every day. Mostly controversial. And these posts. are controversial <laughs> posts. You know, it's for some reason I've become this the guy. guy that gets tagged in anything yes. that is related to eating a lot of meat being good for you yes. or eating a lot of plants being bad for you. Yeah, I'm tagged. You're I'm the there. You're the guy. I'm there. Yeah. So, but you know, a couple of things. I, I mean, I get tagged, and usually, usually some of this stuff's quite complex, and it's a it's a scientific paper. So I'll comment that. I'll write a blog on mm. it or I'll mm. come back to it because I need to read the study and yeah. work out. Like, I, I actually like to read some of these studies, you know, that the keto proponents mm. and whatnot post. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's how I've learned that so much of their studies are, are short term, they're, they're not long term studies. Or they're industry funded, or um, there's some bias there. You know, that if you look at a, uh, an isocaloric ketogenic diet versus a low fat diet, that over time, there's no greater weight loss, you know, if if you're controlling for calories. So, you know, that's how I feel I learned by looking at what they're posting. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. But yeah, coming I mean, back to your point. I find it fun. Yeah. I find it. Well, you're learning. I find it interesting. You're a learner. You're a uh, lifelong learner. You know, that's how the whole climate
1: change. Yeah, man, I know. I saw you get tagged. In, yeah. <laughs> I think I even probably tagged you in that. That was yeah. interesting. So that was, that, was, that was, you're talking about the um, Sarah Wilson put up a, a post.
0: Yeah, Sarah Wilson, yeah. God bless her. Yeah, God bless her. She's, and again, honestly, she's an author. She's, yeah. she's, she's, she's uh, you know, no doubt. New uh, York Times bestseller. Yeah, no doubt has positively impacted people's lives.
1: I think she's doing, like, her net effect is phenomenal. Her overall messaging is, you know, it's very environmentally friendly. At least that's her intention. And I think she's doing great work. She's, she's for sure, you know, moving the needle in, 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 a, in a good way. But it was really interesting seeing you, because you got tagged in this post by, I'm pretty sure I tagged you and a lot of other people did, which then sent you down this sort of very
0: deep rabbit hole of research into, into that. You, yeah. tell, you tell us about that. Yeah, Alice. I mean, I, I'm i very fortunate that I had some great assistance from a very clever girl from the Department of Sustainability at Sydney University, Catherine Essie. So shout yeah. out to Catherine. Thank you for all your very diligent work on this project, but... You know, we set out to answer some questions about climate change. Some of those were directed to things that Sarah had posted. She posted a blog, it was in 2013, and then had made some sort of post on social media that was questioning the sustainability of a vegan diet and um, was a bit more of a sort of pro-grass-fed beef message. And yeah, as you said, I was tagged in it. Multiple people tagged me in it. And to be fair... I commented saying that I needed to go and look at the data because A, I read her blog and it was 2013 Mm. and it wasn't really referenced to anything significant. It was referenced to sort of books and opinion pieces and maybe some YouTube videos. So it it sparked my interest though because Mm. there was, you know, there was claims being made about methane not contributing to climate change. I always thought methane was a significant contributor. Mm -hmm. There was claims about grazing cattle being able to result in net carbon sequestration so bringing coupling carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil mm-hmm. and doing more of that than what the animals and the process of farming those animals is emitting mm-hmm. right? and this is obviously very interesting it's a very interesting topic right yeah. because we're nearly 8 billion people we've got enough science to show that a plant focused or plant exclusive diet is the healthiest ways for humans to eat but what interests me was was, is our best interest aligned with what the planet's best interests are? Yeah. Because if the science that I have read today is on nutrition, and that's where my, my interest is, but what if I'm promoting a way to eat that is destructive mm. for the environment? And that's what Sarah's post, that was the interest that sparked. So I went into this wanting to answer a whole bunch of questions. Yeah. To be honest, I went in with the mindset that I could very well be promoting a diet which is damaging to the planet Mm. because I hadn't done all the research. I didn't understand, you know, fully what, you know, farming of plant-based foods versus animal agriculture. How does it all work? How does the system work? And it's a a very long blog post. I read it. Um, I need to read it probably four more times to understand it properly. So we could speak about it for for hours and I encourage everyone to read it because, you know, this discussion around climate change and, and the food system comes up a lot. and. You know, I hadn't seen anything as comprehensive as what this blog now covers mm. um, in a, in quite a systematic format where questions, you know, around is a grazing cattle better than conventional? Mm. Is consuming chicken and, and fish better than consuming beef? Is methane a a, a contributor? Myth. Yeah, is, is methane is is methane a myth? What would happen if the world went vegan? Yeah. Right, and that yeah. was the last question because I wanted to, to get to the bottom of that and yeah. to cut a very very long story short. What I found was that all of the independent reports show that the farming of plant based foods have much much less impact on the environment. Mm. Right, but there are other considerations. Mm. Right, and and there are the other considerations, uh, things like food security. You know, some some areas of the world don't have enough plant based food sources yeah. to get adequate ca- calories and nutrition, and they yeah. rely on fish. Some of the island countries or some African countries rely on beef and things like that. So, mm, mm. to just sort of flippantly say the whole world should be vegan, it's a nice thought. It is a nice thought, but um, it's it's reductionist again. It's yeah. Not... But where I got to, sort of at the end of it, was that if you can adopt a plant based diet. If you can do it, yep. you know, if if you have within your means, yep. if you can do it and it's affordable for you, you can access all the foods, then according to all of the large independent reports, mm. you are doing the best thing for the planet. And and not only you are offsetting it for people that can't do it mm. or won't do it. And that's the key thing. Yeah. The, the, the question around should can what would happen if the entire world went vegan. It's almost a little bit redundant. Mm. It's like that's not going to happen in 2019. Yep. We need to curb the emissions. You know we've already exceeded the increase in, in rising temperature. Mm. Um, mm. And to curb that further, as many people as possible need to change the way that they eat and move to a plant predominant or plant exclusive diet. When you say plant predominant, what I mean, what percentage That's are, are we talking question. here? Yeah, I define that in my book as well. Mm. 5 to 10% of calories coming from animal products as a maximum would be considered a plant predominant diet. Gotcha. So yeah, you're looking
1: at yeah. that 90 to 95% plants. Mm. So I guess another way to look at it is is when you look at your plate as 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 a, as a you know, an amount of food you're eating, it's a very small, because I remember the, um, the Eat Lancet report. Yeah, which is a good report
0: to look at because yeah. the Eat Lancet report was an investigation from 30, 30 or 37 independent researchers, scientists, yeah. not paid by any food industry, and they looked at what's the best diet for humans in the planet mm. and, you know, it was a largely based. because yeah. right, they, they have a graphic
1: in that report of, of the plate and what it should look like. And it, it is really a small amount
0: of, of animal product on the plate. And when you think 5 to 10% calories, you've also got to think that animal, animal products are very calorie dense. Well, they've got double the yeah. calories. So it's not and, yeah. 5% of the plate in volume. Yes. It's actually less than that. Yeah, good point. Good point. Because there's this 9 calories
1: per, per gram of fat and there's 4 calories per gram of carbohydrates. So you can afford to eat
0: almost twice the amount of carbohydrate for the same amount of, of calories that you're going to get from fat. Yeah. And you know, I encourage you to read the blog... There's certainly areas that food industry outside of animal products need to improve as well, the monocropping and and whatnot. And, you know, we need to be growing a a wider range of plants to get greater biodiversity. Mm -hmm. It's very complex. For sure. um, But at at a top level, consuming more plants is definitely beneficial to the environment. Yes.
1: An argument that I hear
0: literally all the time is that, and
1: this is just painful to hear this, as I mentioned before, but um, if we all went vegan, we'd have to produce more plants and more, you know farming and agriculture for these plant foods. But what people aren't realizing and you've probably looked into this further than I have is that we're feeding plant foods to the cattle. So why not just skip the middleman, being the cow or whatever you're eating, and just eat the plants straight away? So we're feeding how many billions of cattle per year? You yeah know, crazy amounts
0: it's, and, and the yield of calorie system. It's so inefficient mm. yeah. you're putting in ten to twenty times the amount of calories into an animal of what you get out and you've got to remember you're not just growing that meat that you're eating you're growing every you're growing the bones there's so much calories being wasted yeah. through that system you know and and perhaps we should touch on on grass fed versus conventional because that mm. was something interesting that I found, yeah. I had seen before, there's a guy called Alan Savory who's mm. done some, you know, I think he did a TED Talk. Yep. I think it might be a TED Talk. I think talk. it's a viral one, mate. That's, That's, yeah, it's millions of views. And he was proposing a, a system of grazing cattle which would result in carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. So this is what I was talking about before. When any independent bodies have attempted to reproduce that, his own research, mm-hmm. no one's ever been able to, to reproduce it. So when you say his research, he... How did he look into it? What was well? It? This was his own research, so it was very much like almost anecdotal. Gotcha. And you know, the the independent research shows that there are using those such practices or very similar practices. There's still a net carbon emissions of about forty to sixty percent. Right. Yeah. So so you get this small benefit. Well, this is the, what they, he proposes: is you get this
1: small benefit of a reduction. Yeah. In emissions but then the net effect you're saying
0: is significantly Correct. greater. But there's even some data to suggest that grass-fed cattle, grass-fed beef may be worse than conventionally beef when you bring it back to, okay, how much carbon is being emitted yep. and how many calories are we getting? Right. Because the yield's lower, the calorie yield is lower. So there is some reports that show that conventionally farming animals, and we're not talking about animal ethics here because mm. that's a whole other discussion, yeah. but there's some Reports showing that conventionally farmed beef actually has a less damaging effect on the environment when you look at it from a per calorie point of view because they can generate so much more calories mm, in a quicker like lifespan. Correct. Yeah, because right. the ones that are grazing, are, you know, they're taking longer to grow. They're on the land for longer. They're emitting yeah. more methane. You know, this is, these are complex calculations, but there are a lot of very big independent reports which are in that blog, and I think you know if if you go to the report you can almost just skim read it and look at the graphs mm-hmm. and if you look at the IPCC which is you know one of the more recent climate change reports it has a graph and it shows the potential for different dietary frameworks to mitigate climate change mm-hmm. And it has. them I in mean, it's it's in perfect order, moving from uh, vegan diets at the top, yep, and then it goes down vegetarian, yep. and then it goes down to like pescatarian, flexitarian. It just goes down like that, like linear, yeah, yeah. It's a linear, you know, all the way down to carnivore being the worst. Which, mm. well, no surprise. I yeah. mean, that's that's a whole other discussion. Um,
1: I don't think I can get into that. It hurts me. <laughs> oh gosh, talking about just the sort of clickbaity headlines and stuff that's coming out of the carnivore. World, and you know what's funny about the carnivore thing is, I feel like it became famous from Jordan Peterson. Do
0: you know, you, yeah, well, Jordan. Jordan, Jordan yeah, I. You know, to be fair, I listen to Jordan's podcast. Yeah, he's a um, fascinating guy. Like I, I, yeah, I enjoy listening to him he's, talk. He he's very interesting in the way that he thinks. Yes, um, he's got some, some you know some some brilliant ways to look at things. But mm. yeah, you're right. That's him and and his daughter Michaela. Yes, that they they essentially made this diet
1: famous because. They say that it's, I guess, reversed or cured their autoimmune conditions. Yeah. And again, this is a deep one to get into because it's the it's the the old uh, correlation causation argument. Just because something's correlated doesn't mean it caused it. And it's very tricky to know what is actually helping their autoimmune disease. Is it the fact that they're eating meat or they're not eating X,
0: Y, and Z? You know, it's, we'll never really know. Well, it is. I mean, it is... In effect, a, a fairly strict elimination diet. Hmm. I guess we can't discount the fact that there does seem to be enough people who are talking about short-term benefits of the carnivore diet to yeah. to you know to sort of go well. There can't be this. Many crazy people can there like they. Well, I don't know. They must be feeling better, and I and I think short term oh, yeah. the elimination aspect of it that sort of explains why people might get some short term benefits for sure. I, I don't think anyone's faking it. No, no doubt. But you know, there's a we've been naming a lot of people in this podcast, and I don't normally do that, but mm. again. None of this stuff's personal. I think it's just nice to be able to talk openly, and I would, I would encourage any of these guys, Dr. Mark Hyman, Sarah Wilson, to come on the show. And I'd love and, that. And, and I would always be open to having an open conversation because I don't know any everything, and mm. and, and I'm sure you would say the same. And sure. you know, they may be able to to open our eyes to something new. However, I think Paul Sal, Saladino. No, mm-hmm. oh, Saladino. I think it's Saladino, which is the ironic thing. Salad. I think his salad is in his last name, <laughs> um, but he's very much anti-salad. So Paul Saladino, Doctor Paul Saladino. He's a psychiatrist. I think he's from. I think he's from the West Coast. Brilliant speaker, very convincing speaker. Mm. I've listened to a few. So this is another. I listened to Carnival podcasts. Mm. I listened to him for about forty-five minutes, and I was very impressed with the way that he was able to position his his view on the carnivore diet. Yeah. I fact-checked though and had a look at the science that he uses and it's even on his website. He uses six case studies. So we're talking about single-person case studies, mm-hmm. short-term case studies. One of them is is a, is a diabetic, type 2 diabetic, mm-hmm. who gets improvements in blood glucose control. And I we've surprised. spoken about yeah. that because carnivore is essentially a ketogenic diet, yep. can be, depending yep. how you're doing it. Yep. But, yeah, you're not consuming any carbohydrates. Yep. So improving your blood glucose, that's fine, but it's not telling you what that person's long-term health outcomes are are going to be by adopting such a diet and removing more healthful foods. So there's like six case studies. Mm. There's there's nothing more vigorous than that. Mm. And then there's some links to Jordan and Michaela Peterson. Like anecdotal evidence. More anecdotal evidence. And that's what the... Crux and the base of, of his website and his services are built on. Yeah. Which, yeah, it baffles me. It, it, the problem here is that
1: it's become a numbers game. So when you go on Instagram and you see Mark Hyman, and, and you know, I'm not going to name everyone, but these people with millions, hundreds of thousands of followers, the, the lay person looks at them and goes, well, they've got a doctor in their name. They must know what they're talking about. Everyone seems to agree. They've got a million followers.
0: So then they take everything that they're saying as, as the truth. I think on that doctor thing, I think people need to be careful. You know, obviously doctors are certainly people that we should very much respect in society and they're very, very smart. But I think we need to look at what type of doctor they are as well. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, and Paul Saladino, who I just spoke about, he's a psychiatrist, but he's giving advice under the guise of essentially being a doctor He's done a functional medicine course, which I looked up, which is a 90-day course. Mm. That's a little different to someone who is an MD and has then done specialty in gastroenterology or mm. um, is yeah, Working
1: in a nutrition. clinic and actually seeing patients every single day and contributing to, to publications and yeah. you know, peer-reviewed studies. And all. Yeah,
0: it's, it's very different. We need to draw a line, I think. Which is something like when I get guests on this show, it's something that I consider very carefully mm. who are the doctors that come on this show because mm. obviously people when they see doctors on the show they, they're 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 tuning in and and you know they're listening with the understanding that that person is a medical doctor mm. but you, you know it can get lost on social media yeah i mean social
1: media is a funny landscape to to make our way through it's changing i feel like it's changing all the time you know i've seen things on social media that have really disturbing. Even personally, like I recently got approached by somebody who invited me to this this private, like a WhatsApp group of influencers. And the whole idea is that, that it's called a pod. And there's a group of influencers that join this pod and they sort of work together as this team to boost one another's engagement and I guess make it look like their posts getting more likes, getting more comments, getting more views, whatever it is. I obviously turned down this offer because it just, it disturbed me to think that, you know, the content, so basically how it works is, let's say I join the pod and I get approached by a brand or a company that wants to pay me to put up a post. And it's a product that I'm not really well aligned with. And I know that it's going to come across as a little bit cheesy and promotional and something that I wouldn't usually put on my Instagram, but I know that I'm going to get a good amount of money from it. So what you would do is you'd go to your pod and you say, hey, guys, just posted product X. Please go leave a comment, give it a like. And all of a sudden, within two minutes of putting this post up, you've got 50 of like the biggest influences in in your city or even country all posting a comment at the exact same time. Oh, my God, love it, the best, da, da, da. But it's artificial. Man, it's, it's totally fake. It's totally fake. And it's this mutualism. So it's like, well, you do it for me, I'll do it for you. We all do it mm-hmm. for each other when we post these things. And what it essentially does is it, it deceives the client into thinking that they're getting a return on investment, that you're getting this amazing engagement and people are loving the product and it's, people are seeing it, when really you've just manufactured this fake moment where then the client will go, oh, look, we, we had you know 500 comments and all these verified blue tick Instagrammers are talking about it. And then they then look at their marketing budget and go, Hey, we can afford to do this again to them and to, and it's just it's a crazy manipulation of the system. Hundred really. percent, It's a hack. It's it's an Instagram hack. And it's just, we need to be so careful about what we're seeing on online. We can't just take everything mm. the way we see
0: it. Got, and I mean, got if, to, you, if you dig deep into that and you think about it, you think, okay, the motivation is that, you know, these guys want to get greater engagement to make more money. That's it. But the fact that they're having to go to that level means that the content that they're putting up, there's something wrong with the content. It's got, yeah. to, got to come back to to the content, right? Yes. Because if, if you're artificially increasing your engagement, it's only going to last so long. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And you know, I feel like the the most important thing on social media, and I'm sure you agree, is content that adds value to the community. Hundred percent. I think
1: that's why Instagram uh, took the likes away. How did you find that? Did you, did you enjoy that? The fact that. You can no longer see how many likes somebody's getting. I think that the whole point of that was to to go back to the root of, of what it was about. Instagram was always about documenting yeah. real moments, not creating fake moments. So now it's all about posting for value. What what is the consumer or the person observing my post going to get out of this content? Is it valuable or not? It's not a popularity contest anymore. We can't even see I think it's been a great it's a great move.
0: It hasn't actually rolled out everywhere though, right? Because it, yeah, it doesn't just seem like of it's in America. No, it's not. Yeah. I think Canada and Australia are, are doing it. Yeah. I mean there's always some sort of resistance to change. Mm. I look at it like an iPhone. Mm. iPhone. They they update something and people are outraged but they know what you want before you know. A month later, you're (laughs) raving about this feature. Yes, Like, you know, on the iPhone now, how there's no button on the front of it. Yes. I picked up an iPhone the other day, one of the old ones. Yeah. I was like, swiping up. how did I used to use this? (laughs) I know, me too.
1: (laughs) And you adapt in like a few days. Like you you get used to the new technology so fast. I did the same thing. I went back to my old one and it was so small and had the button. It's just, yeah, we're we're
0: always evolving. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of strategies for um, engagement, there's another very cheeky strategy. We're covering all sorts of topics here, but yeah, I like it because this is kind of just like the conversations that we would have exactly if we were having lunch or breakfast now. Yeah. So there's this strategy that I came across and essentially what it is, is to, to put a post up, which is for 50% of your followers, highly inflammatory mm-hmm. and likely to annoy them. And for the other 50%, likely to really appeal to them Mm -hmm. and it'll create conflict in your comments Mm. and conflict in your comments according to the algorithm means engagement and engagement means you're going to show in more of your followers feeds and you're going to more likely show on the featured page Mm. i've seen this too i see it often there's one guy who's (laughs) certainly
1: uh steering the ship when it comes to that stuff but yeah it's it's The fact that we have to feel like we have to hack the algorithm is so pathetic, you know, really is pathetic. But these people are making serious money off this stuff, like really, really big money. You know, when you provoke 50% and then you appeal to the other 50, and like you said, they start talking in your comment section. And then all of a sudden, what a post that would have had, you know, maybe a few hundred comments is literally having thousands and thousands of comments.
0: They're growing very rapidly. You know, you've seen these accounts grow. They're going fast, man. I've seen them. And, you know, I think I look at it and I think, okay, it's a strategy. It's fair game. But then I think there is also, you know, it's kind of like like football or any sport. There's a bit of an underlying etiquette, mm. and, you know, and I think that it can get to a stage where if you're so savvy you're kind of taking advantage of a community in a way by yeah. manipulating, creating scenarios which – Creating an inflammatory post to annoy fifty percent of people, you know, I mean, you got to be you got to be comfortable with having fifty percent of the people maybe not feeling that great that day. I don't know how I, I don't sure. think I would feel feel very good doing a post sure. like that. Yeah, it's a good point. I guess
1: it's 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 like don't hate the player, hate the game kind of thing. That's their mentality. It's like this is a, we're playing a game here. You know, there's the, essentially there's a set of rules, but you know, there's no referee. We can do whatever we want. I think it's it's dangerous. It gets ugly, and mate, some of the comments and the the wars that you see in that comment section, it's it's so bad. You should just go through a, a Garth
0: Davis post and look through the comments. It is brutal. It is so brutal. And I mean, I I, I don't think by any means we're saying that Garth Davis is out there doing no, no, no. doing employing this strategy. He speaks very much to the to the science, yeah. but. It, it, it tends to be inflammatory for some people because yeah. um, a lot he gets a lot of people from the carnival and the ketogenic diets tagged into his posts. I've noticed. Yes, he does. But I think Garth does a good job. He, so he's he
1: communicating with people and oh, brilliant! Yeah, I'm not saying for a second that that's his strategy. I'm just saying how. If you do provoke people, d- despite your intent, it, it's, it raises this conversation. I think it's an important conversation to have. A lot of the time it is, but it just gets ugly. It gets messy.
0: Because, you get ugly quickly.
1: Yeah, because you, you, you're not accountable to, to you know, you're not seeing the person face to face. You would never say these things to someone's face. Mm. No one would. But when you're behind the keyboard, you can do whatever you want. You get away with it. There's this anonymity that you can just say what you want and then bail, exit, and it's, and it's over. In fact, I've even seen, you know, you've put up posts that, have been, I guess, provocative to, to people that really love carnivore and keto and all that sort of stuff. And they disengaged in your comment section because they know that if they do talk in your comment section, that they're going to help you with your algorithm
0: to reach more people. So it's like, yeah, it gets, I mean, that's highly tactical. I, yeah, I've never thought about it that way in that, like, I, yeah, I, I get tagged in people's posts uh, who are posting something which I may not agree with, and I usually would comment. But now that I think about it, I'm pr- perhaps I'm just further boosting their message. Probably, who knows? I think I think I've been tagged in a few of James Smith's posts before. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I think everyone gets tagged in those. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, his content. Look, he he's taken a, a unique approach. He's got this. Um, look, he's a funny guy. Let's be honest, some of his posts are very humorous. I I do get a laugh out of a lot of them, but it's so clear now that sort of you paint this picture, it's like so many people get offended, but so many love him. It's it's truly this like love-hate divide, and it's working from a business perspective, all right? If you're thinking about what he's setting out to achieve, which I don't know what he's trying to set out to achieve, but it's growing his his account and putting his name out there very quickly, and I'm sure he's selling something on a website somewhere, and this strategy has to help you sell. It, it helps. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got to be okay with, like you said, hurting people's feelings, being provocative, and I guess just being straight up, like lacking compassion, really. Mm. You've got to be okay with those things. And if money is the driver, then that's that's a strategy to take. It's mm. not for
0: me. It's not for you. <laughs> no, I have to agree. I think he's, he's actually very humorous. He's the type of guy that you could easily hang out with. Yeah. And have a laugh with. I'd probably... If I was a follower, I'd probably be looking at him more for a personal training advice rather than nutrition, dietary advice. I think the nutrition side of things mm. is is a little bit oversimplified, and this is obviously not just directed at James. This is more of a general thing. Mm. The, you know, what do you think about the the whole energy balance? Is is everything calorie counting? It's not about the quality of the food; it's the quantity. You know, this is. Mm we've spoken about the ketogenic diet. Mm. This is almost like a whole nother area. It is. If it fits your macros, yeah. it's probably what you would That's it. Um, umbrella all of this conversation in. Yeah, it's, it's called flexible dieting, which is
1: essentially the idea that once you figure out your BMR, basal metabolic rate, how many calories you require to either maintain or lose weight, that you can then calculate what macros you need within those calories, and then as long as you eat within your calorie intake, within those macronutrient targets, you can eat any food you want and still lose weight. And it's true, you can, you absolutely can. There's no doubt about it. So many people are doing it. You know, their whole sort of selling point is that you can eat whey protein and pop tarts and still be stage ready for Miss. Hey, India. that's appealing, right? It's to, very, to the mainstream. Yes. That's that's appealing. It is very appealing, but it's so aesthetic focused. It's not a health focused diet or framework at all. So the whole idea is eat the foods you want, eat the foods you know aren't good for you, but don't exceed your macronutrient targets and you're good. You're going to be ripped. You can have a six pack, you can step on a stage, you can win a bodybuilding competition. You can look great in, in, in swim, swim shorts at the beach or whatever it is. But what's happening under the skin, and how yeah. how nutritionally adequate is that? Actually, exactly. Like if you wear your body inside out, how sexy are you really going to be? Let's be honest. You know, you're you're putting if it fits your macros is is not going to look that sexy. No, you're gonna. It's you're putting literally garbage into your body, and your your shell or exterior looks appealing, but I don't even know what's going on on the inside. I can assure you, it's not good. And 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 the reason that this thing has taken off is because what you just said. It's Giving, the, giving people the idea that they can still have the foods that they know are probably not good for them and they feel guilty eating, but there's now a calculation or an
0: equation that allows it to work. Do you know what I hear often from these guys? Mm. And a few of them have messaged me about it. And I have a fairly strong opinion on this. I haven't posted a lot on it because I almost feel like if I shared this, I'd get attacked. Mm. What do you think about describing foods as bad foods and good foods? Oh, this is messy. This, is, this comes back
1: to clean eating and dirty eating and good food, bad food. I'll tell you where my stance is. I'm sure I know yours. I've probably opened a can of worms here. You have. You have. Firstly, it depends on the goals. What, what are your goals? If your goal is to step on a bodybuilding stage, essentially, in their eyes, there is no bad foods. There's just macronutrients. So protein, whether it's from steak or from beans, it doesn't make a difference it's protein, protein's protein, carbs are carbs, fats are fats. So it's completely taking quality out of the picture. So they don't think that there's a good or bad, there's just macros. Then there's guys like you and I who are like obsessed with food quality. And of course, we think their foods are good and good and bad, right? I do anyway, I'm talking on behalf of you. I
0: absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, my, my, my question here is geared towards, I guess, um, you know, you use the word obsessed then, right? And I think there's a healthy obsession. There can be a healthy obsession and there can be an unhealthy obsession. Yeah. And I think that when the terms bad and good foods get used, people get attacked for using them because people say it causes eating disorders. Mm. And, you know, to one to one side I can kind of understand what they're saying, but then to the other side I kind of think that, you know, there, there are foods that we know that are good and there are that are bad. And I think understanding that and having an, a healthy understanding and approach to that is actually you know important as an adult mm. to to see the foods for what they are yeah and to, and not to shy away from that and and to to be scared of that yeah. to just to understand that information use that information and knowledge yeah and you know in an, in an adult manner yeah i th- i might you know what to put it just to be frank We've gotten
1: soft with what we can, you know, what we're willing to handle is good or bad. We're so attached. We put it we, we attach emotions to foods. And if someone tells you the food you're eating is bad, people feel like you're attacking them personally or, or you're going against them in, in some way. But we just need to look at, at the facts of the matter is like, yes, you can look good eating poor quality foods and step on a stage. But if health is your goal and longevity is your goal and you know, mm. lifespan, health span, we need to be able to accept that there are foods that are good and bad. You know, we, we can't be so soft and emotional about it. We need to understand why these foods are good and bad. What are the repercussions of eating junk food your whole life or processed food, you know? Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, you, you took... You got sh- that study, oh, yeah. Mate,
0: I was just about to say, you shared an amazing study with me. Yeah. Before we just jump yeah. into that, though, I think what you just said then is brilliant. It's the context of these conversations. Some of the context is around your body fat percentage and looking good. And really though, I think that conversation often gets blended into conversations around overall health, nourishing and longevity. They're two separate conversations. Yes. Yes. And and that's where the lines can get very blurred. Exactly. And, And there is a solution that
1: actually ticks both. Correct. There is a way to eat that you can eat an abundance of healthy food and be stage ready. And I mean, there's perfect examples of Bodybuilders all over the world who are strictly vegan, who have never eaten meat their whole life, who eat only whole food plant based diet, and are winning competition. They, they look phenomenal. They're extremely healthy. They're doing everything in their power to avoid long term chronic illness. And they're, you know, look mm. great. So you can have both at the same time. We don't it doesn't have to be this
0: divide you know, the way it is, you know, mm. that we see it online. And that study that you just referred to, that was that was like the perfect study. Yeah, that study came the out earlier. Study. I think it was 2019. Kevin Hall. Yeah, he ran a. It was a, a a randomized. It was a crossover trial. A randomized crossover yes. trial. Brilliant, brilliant study design. And what was great about this was a few things. It was done in inpatient, so they could actually control these people. I think it was only about 20 or 20 or 20 to 30 of people, somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. But what they did was they fed people a diet that was a unprocessed diet, right? They gave them the food. They supplied the food to them mm-hmm. over, over and above the calories that that person would need. Yep. And they just told people just to eat until they were satisfied. And they did a two-week period of unprocessed food. Mm-hmm. And then those same people did a two-week period of processed food. That's yep. what a crossover design is. Yep. But what they did was a really neat thing was they made sure that the carbohydrates, the fat... The protein, the sugar and the sodium and the fiber Mm. were the same in both diets. So let me explain that again. Two weeks on an unprocessed diet, then two weeks on a processed diet, ultra-processed diet. But we're gonna make the macronutrients the same. So this is this is literally the if it fits your macros. Correct. Over over the course of the two weeks, what they realized was that people eating the processed food. Right it, when, when those people were on the processed food diet, even though it was the same amount of protein, same fiber, which usually are the two factors that people say contribute most to being satiated, mm. on the processed diet, people consumed on average 500 calories more per day. Unbelievable, right? These ultra processed foods that you know, if it fits your macros, proponents often say are okay to to include into the diet. For for whatever reason, yeah, people were consuming more of them. I mean that we know that food scientists design
1: food to be addictive and more palatable, so you eat more of them. But I remember you told me a part of that study, which kind of blew my mind, was that despite eating more of the ultra-processed food, their level of satiation and hunger was the same, right? Correct.
0: People thought they were just as full. That's crazy. Isn't, for an
1: extra five, it took them for an extra, extra five hundred
0: 500 calories. Yeah. Right, and then when they were. Following the two week of, of processed food, people were gaining weight. Yep, and of course, you know, losing weight in the in the unprocessed diet. Yeah, right. There was a on average five hundred calories a day
1: difference. So they were basically on the on the the real food diet, so to speak. They felt like they didn't need to eat as much. They could eat less calories and feel the
0: same fullness. Exactly. So, so I think that's the key thing. These people were supplied food, mm-hmm. right? Which was not calorie limited because the whole idea of the study was let's set the macronutrients exactly the same. Yeah, let's give people the food, make the, sure the fibers are the same, the sugar, the sodium. Yep. Let's just see how much these people eat until they feel satiated. Such a good Their study. Their hunger's gone. Yeah. You know, and they feel like they've eaten until they're full. Brilliant study, right? And the ones that were eating the unprocessed diet were, or oh, sorry, because it was a crossover study. Yep. When they each person did both diets. Yep. When people were doing the unprocessed diet, they were consuming on average 500 calories less per day of the exact same macros that were given. Exact same macros, which is three thousand five hundred calories. That's a lot a week, right? When you start to multiply that out and you consider that over a month and over a year, good point. We're talking, you know, serious serious weight differences.
1: Hundred percent. I mean, what you just said there. Unfortunately, the ultra processed food is the Western diet. Like that is what people are doing on a daily basis for a lifetime. And we wonder why the whole world essentially, well, not the whole world, but the Western world is obese with so much chronic disease. They're eating these highly palatable addictive foods without even knowing that they're over, over consuming calories, you know,
0: it's pretty crazy. I'm going to bring this one around 360, right? We started with diabetes. We've spoken about it, you know, quite a few, I guess, other dietary frameworks and a little bit about Things to look out for I guess on online mm. some of the things that we're seeing anyway, and you just spoke then about obesity and chronic disease and and of course you know type two diabetes is the prevalence of type two diabetes is skyrocketing you know i feel I feel like there are, it's it's almost like a sensitive i actually don't know how to word this, so mm. I'm likely to to potentially offend people here without meaning to mm. and I think th- That's exactly why I want to ask this question. It almost seems like type 1 diabetics uh, feel like they can be left out of the conversation sometimes, and that there is this stigma associated with type 2 diabetics being overweight and lazy, and that is the cause and the reason why someone got type 2 diabetics, type 2 diabetes, whereas someone with type 1 diabetes, it was an Mm. autoimmune It's an autoimmune condition and it was more bad luck. Mm. And I feel like I see it online, type 1 diabetics really like to make a point that this wasn't through their lifestyle. But then on the other hand, type 2 diabetes is not just affecting people that are overweight and are not moving their body. Yeah.
1: Mate, this is a slippery slope. Um, I'm not sure if I conveyed that right. You did. I understand exactly what you're saying.
0: it's a slippery slope, which I'm willing to go down. Well, I mean, you're, the reason I'm asking you is because yeah. you have type 1 diabetes. Yeah. You're respected in the diabetic community. Yeah, I feel like this is something that people don't talk about. Yeah. But I think, I think we should be able to. This is important. This
1: is huge. This is um one of the psychological, I guess, barriers that a lot of di- people, This I was about to say a lot of diabetics face, but even saying diabetics, people get offended. They're people living with diabetes. That's I personally don't get offended at all. You can call me a diabetic. Can, it doesn't bother me. But I know that it's such a sensitive area that if you say to someone that they're a diabetic, they get offended.
0: So, What well, kind of depersonalizes everything when you do that? I can understand this, that. Yeah. Um, it puts the disease in control of you rather than you in control kind of thing. And I don't think it's intentional. Someone's trying to depersonalize it. I think it's more yeah. of... A term used in the medical community, which is now spread into the community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But so to answer your question, so
1: people with type 1 diabetes get very offended. And I'm talking, this is a generalist sort of um, answer. They get offended when you confuse their type of diabetes with type 2 diabetes, because most people think that type 2 diabetes is a disease of laziness, lack of willpower Lack of exercise, you know, gluttony, all these kinds of things. Which self-inflicted. Yes. Honestly. Yes. Like you had a choice. You know, I didn't have a choice to get type one diabetes. I didn't cause this. I wish I didn't have it. But you can avoid type two. And what have you done to avoid it? You should have done better. That's that's kind of a mindset that a lot of people throw around. And I, I hear this and see this all the time. It's dangerous to think like that. Because it is so much more complex than that. Diabetes does not discriminate anyone and everyone can get diabetes type 2 diabetes and type 1 we don't we don't know who can can't get it I was 22 when I was diagnosed I never thought I'd get type 1 diabetes right but what I take from this is I might not have caused it and it's not my fault but how I react to it is my responsibility same with type 2 there are people with type 2 diabetes who are lazy and who are overweight and who are eating McDonald's every day and they get type 2 diabetes right? But there are also people with type two diabetes who aren't overweight, who are in fact athletes who get diabetes. Right? It's a complicated disease. There's a genetic element. There's a microbiome element. There's viruses. There's molecular mimicry. There's so much that goes on. To simplify it and reduce it to, to the point where it's like one of them is self-inflicted and the other isn't is is a dangerous place. And I don't. Th- I think the conversation needs to be a lot more open. I I know that. Everyone with type 2 diabetes doesn't want it, even if they did cause it themselves, even if they are lazy and overweight. No one wants this disease. It is so dangerous. It's scary. The complications are are extremely severe. So no one wants it. I think that the conversation needs to be one of, of, of compassion. Like we need to understand that a chronic disease is not something that anyone asked for, whether it was type 1 or type 2 or anything. We need to be compassionate to people who are facing these conditions and, and help them. You know, and the comment section on there's like memes about diabetes, about type one and type two that go around in the diabetes community. The comment section starts this dialogue that we're talking about now about, you know, you need to own your diabetes, you need to take responsibility. We all need to take responsibility for how we manage our diabetes, regardless of the cause or, or how we got here in the first place. So, yeah, it's, but it is, it is a touchy topic. It's beautifully put there. Yeah. I just, I've, I've, seen, I've seen a lot and I actually, there was a point where I put forward to the CEO of Diabetes Australia that type 1 and type 2 should not even be labelled as the same disease because they are so different in their pathogenesis, right? They're characterised by the same symptoms. Both of them uh, lead to high blood sugar levels. But the actual cause of the diseases are so different that it seems strange to me that they're even called the same thing just because the, the, the symptoms are the same, and that conversation was in a room with a lot of people with diabetes, and it divided the room. You know, it was a big comment that I made, and I kind of sat back and thought about it a bit more. And to be perfectly honest, I still don't know where I, how I feel about the, the labeling of the diseases and, and whether they should be different diseases. Mm-hmm. You know, that different types of diabetes. I just don't. I don't know where I sit yet. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But all I know is that. Doesn't matter what type you have. No one wants it. We all want to do our best to manage it, and we can all sort of help each other and learn from each other. And the solution, you know, a management
0: strategy for Type One and Type Two tend to be the same. Yeah, I agree, mate. You know, it's a sensitive, sensitive issue. It is. But I mean, once again, this is this is labels. Mm. This is just labels. Yeah. that humans use. Yeah, bit like religion. Yeah, a bit like dietary yeah. frameworks. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and <laughs> these things, these labels tend to have a a, a history of creating conflict. Mm, absolutely. You know, as much as they also help simplify things and, and, and help us in discussions, you know, they can cause conflict if, if you look at them, you know, in, in, with a certain lens. Mm. But I think also
1: a- another thing I've been telling myself is I'm responsible for my triggers. So if someone says something that triggers me, I'm responsible. There's something inside of me that is allowing that comment or that mm. that person, what they said, to trigger me. And I think we all need to. And I really don't want this to be offensive. but We all need to harden up a little bit. All right. There's plenty of labels out there, and everyone's offended about everything that we say. If you find something offensive, and if you feel triggered, take responsibility for the trigger. Figure out why it's triggering you,
0: and and I've court internalize it a bit. We we yeah. we're, we're so affected by the external. It's even our happiness as well. You know how 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 important is external validation? That's it for so much of, of people's happiness when you know, if if you're, if you're constantly looking for external validation Mm. that happiness is going to be short lived. Absolutely. It's got to be an inside out approach. Hey friends, me again, quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Pretty much getting towards the end of this one. <laughs> what about those news headlines in the last couple of weeks? <sighs> What was the one? The C word, choline, was it? Yeah, the choline. You know, I know, I think I think your mum asked you or she expressed some concern about the choline. She did. Um,
1: She asked me the question and the first thing I did was ask you. (laughs) 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 Because I know that when you read
0: a scientific uh, paper, you don't read the abstract. That was... You go into it. That was one that, one of the ones where I was tagged in that for a few days, just maybe we should give a bit of the backstory in case someone listening is not familiar. There was a... And some new some media around choline being a, a sort of nutrient of concern, I guess, for for the vegan population, and that was you know largely around brain health, um, and they were you know focusing in as well on pregnant women and and newborns and talking about like neural tube defects and things like that. Everyone is affected by such headlines. I read those headlines and I thought those are scary headlines. Mm. And I needed to look into it. Mm. Um, I sort of dissected this in the previous. I uploaded an episode yesterday. I sort of dissected it, but in short, it was it's actually really, really interesting. Mm. It's, it's a very, very interesting. Mm. Um, I don't know. You probably haven't listened to the episode I put up yesterday, I but I'll, I'll just <laughs> describe uh, what I found. Yeah. So, the British Medical Journal was where this this article was published. It was published by nutritionist, Emma Derbyshire. And the first few things that I found was that Emma sat on the beef advisory panel.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. She also advised for the egg, the British Egg Centre, I think it was called. You know, both beef and eggs, particularly, are very rich in in choline. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There's been a number of really poorly done studies by the egg industry on eggs, in particular to show that eggs are healthy, you know, they know they're fighting a bit of an uphill battle with the whole cholesterol thing. So they need to now look at, you know, other nutrients in eggs and and sort of shift the conversation away from cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was posting, I think last month, some speeches from the 2020 USDA Dietary Guidelines yeah. Committee. So essentially, the US Dietary Guidelines, the current ones I think were 2014 to 2019, 2015 to 2019, yeah. and the new ones are 2020 to 2025. So they're, they're going through the process now of reviewing the science. People from the health industry but also the food industry can get up in front of the USDA committee and make a three-minute speech. Yeah. And you can listen to these on YouTube. But from the animal industry this year, the common theme was out of nowhere, choline. Right. Choline is a nutrient that people need more of, Right. And kind of came out of nowhere because the actual research on how much choline we need is based off a single study from in 1991, which didn't even look at it. All it looked at was how much choline do we need to essentially prevent liver damage. Right. And all the study found was that if you go 50 milligrams or below, you can get liver damage from choline deficiency. Yeah. And at 500 milligrams, there wasn't. They didn't test anything in the middle. Okay. And as a result... There's no RDI or recommended dietary intake for choline, right? And that's why you often don't see it on products, on the on the labels. It's never really been considered a super super important nutrient. I've got to be honest; I'd, I'd never heard of it, and that's why they set what's called an adequate intake, and, and you know that's like the minimum effective dose, basically, right? Well, an adequate intake is the definition. Is that there? The definition includes the word assumed. Okay, so there's in- inadequate science so this is the assumed amount okay. that we believe is adequate okay right based off a study that looked at liver damage this whole conversation is about neurological um yeah you know <laughs> the neurological concerns with deficiency that wasn't even ever studied yeah so there's a whole lot of sort of assumptions and then tying together science that doesn't exist with with health outcomes but then you know she's she's paid by the the beef industry i thought okay Give her the benefit of the doubt because mm. the claims are serious. They're serious enough to look, let's just look at the science ind- independent of, you know, what she published was an opinion piece. Mm. That's the other thing. It was in a British medical journal, but it, it's actually an editorial, mm. which is the lowest form of science you can write whatever you want. It's not It's not a review. A review would be a systematic review with a meta-analysis where you have to have a quite a, you know, a strict procedure. You mm. need to explain what studies you've included and excluded. Yep. You need to show what statistical analysis you used. And the whole idea of a, a systematic review and meta-analysis is that if you hand that over to someone else, they'll replicate and get the same results. Yep. This, on the other hand, was an opinion piece, and it really comes down to how you interpret the science that exists or potentially a science that doesn't exist, and then make some assumptions, which is what this one did. Mm. But, you know, as as you move through the science, you know, you see that there's no RDI set. You then look at at science that looks at choline deficiency. Mm. And choline deficiency results in and in, in liver damage. It results in can result in elevated homocysteine and increased cardiovascular disease risk. Plant-based populations have lower incidence of uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yep, and it, and it's actually, you know, the, the the greater amount of whole plant foods, the lower risk of of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We know that. Yep. We know that plant based communities have lower incidences of cardiovascular disease compared to people eating beef and eggs. Right, and those products have choline. Was is choline linked to TMA? Is that the one? So then, yeah, that's the other side. So we know that plant based or plant focused communities who are getting less choline than the average person in, the, in their population. Yep. And when they've surveyed the average person in America and the average person in Europe, they're getting 30 40% less than what the adequate intake level is. Mm. 97% or something of Americans were getting less than, you know, and these are the average people. Right. Right. So then you think, okay, plant-based people are getting even less, but the plant-based populations are suffering from less of the diseases that choline deficiency causes. So what it shows is that, you know, they're getting enough. Yes. They're getting enough and ultimately high, super high levels. Is that a good thing? And we know what you just talked about before about um, TMAO. And this is, I, t- I mentioned before, a study that, you know, an, an egg industry study, an egg industry funded study. So we know that if you feed someone two hard-boiled eggs, mm-hmm. they get a spike in their their TMAO. Mm-hmm. Sorry, like in TMA is produced by bacteria in the large intestine. About two to four hours after consuming, you get a big spike. Mm-hmm. That's converted in the liver to TMAO. And then it's, it, it starts to taper off. Okay. But the post-prandial or post-meal yep. effect is a spike. And we know that. And we know that TMAO is an independent predictor of cardiovascular disease. That means independent of high blood pressure or any other risk factors. Right. If you you chart someone's TMAO, that can predict cardiovascular disease risk, Right. Okay. Okay. which was a huge finding. Yeah. The egg industry-funded studies, what they do, same thing, feed people two eggs, but what do they do? They measure the TMAO eight to 12 hours later.
1: Mm, so they By that the time,
0: spike. the spike gone, mm. right? But you're discounting the fact of what did the elevated TMAO do, you know, in, the, in, in, that, time. in that time. And how many times a day are you doing and that? And then if you have... Eggs for breakfast, and yes. then you have some other animal products for lunch. Yeah. Then you have something else for dinner. You get spike. Yes, it comes down, then spike, spike. again, then yeah. spike again, yeah. and you're getting you know this increase in TMAO three times a day mm. over time. You know, and their, their study doesn't really appreciate that. That's something that Dr. Gregor has actually spoken about before. So, anyway, overall, the, the summary of what I found on Colin was that. You know, we we, we do need choline. We can produce some choline, but it seems we need more in our diet. There are plant-based foods, which in the blog I wrote, that do have fairly good amounts Mm -hmm. of choline. And it seems like most of the population are not reaching the adequate intake level. It seems like too high choline is not actually favorable. And plant-based communities are not suffering from diseases associated with choline deficiency. So I think the whole thing was completely blown out of proportion so they
1: they sort of came up with this nutrient of concern which when you look at the epidemiological data around the population groups that they think should have the
0: most liver disease and neural yeah. defects and all this they just this, uh, are misaligned this, this is this is a common tactic and 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 i can you know it's been done with high before yeah what's, what's with, next hey, it's I'm, been done with iron and it's been done with protein yeah so B twelve, yeah B twelve. Yeah. Like yeah. It, you know, new new ones surface. It's always about what's not in the. What are you going to miss out? It's creating yeah. the fear because, you know, I think ancestrally we have a, a hard wiring to a degree for animal products, and we look at them as safety. Mm. And I and I think a lot of people unconsciously see animal products as safety. They they fear taking them off their plate. Yeah. And I think that's because ancestrally, when food security wasn't as good, that was like a rich, dense source of calories, and yep. it meant survival, mm, right? Mm. But when you have an abundance of food, you've got all this science. It's it's a different. We're living in 2019, mm. so you know, underpinning a lot of this behaviour that we see, I think, is fear. Mm. I think that um, the whole primal, you know, looking
1: back in time through this evolutionary lens is such a nice story to tell ourselves about what we should be eating today because most people have that evolutionary sort of idea that, you know, what we ate as we were evolving over all these millions of years is probably going to be best for us today. But you just said it best. We aren't living 20 million years ago. We aren't living in that time where it's that the modern landscape is so different now. We have so many foods available to us all the time, an abundance of calories, we're just not cavemen anymore. And, you know, focusing on nutrients that our, our ancestors, you know, probably got
0: more or less of, it's just, it's confusing us even more. And the diet over those millions of years has always changed. It's always, always evolved. It's always progressed. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's not about the human diet being stagnant. I don't know where the diet's going to progress to in the Great next point. 100 or, or 200 years, but we're constantly learning and we, we have to use yes. the best available information that we have. Yeah. And- and, and take into consider you know food access yes. things like that I mean climate change the the paleo diet
1: of today is not the same paleo diet of our ancestors our food is different mm-hmm. it has way more carbohydrate than they used to they had more fiber than we it's just different', it's and different they were eating
0: they were eating mammoth yes wild <laughs> game yeah totally they were mammoth and, yeah. and, and uh, you know antelope. Yeah, um, it's very different to, so, to, to to bacon and eggs and some factory exactly, farm beef.
1: Exactly. It's like the question is: Should we be mimicking diets just because we used to have them, or should we see what's available now and what do we know now based off really good evidence in in twenty nineteen that is healthy and mm-hmm. going to be best for us? You know, it's it's really for me. I made this. I I came around eventually, but I had the paleo mindset for like eight years. And um, you know, eventually, I I saw the light through this plant-based eating, where it's like, well, what do we actually know is good for us today? And made the transition. I feel mm. damn good for it.
0: But it's confusing, and and you know, the headlines like this and the other headline on on vegetarian and and stroke risk. I don't know if you saw that. I that, did see that, that a couple of days afterwards. It confuses people. There's there's a lot of people that don't want to see people consuming more plants.
1: So was that what was that study that was saying that? There's a link between higher rates of stroke in more vegan
0: or vegetarian-based diets. Yeah, so there was a a study. This was actually a study. So unlike the, the choline article, which was an opinion piece, there was a study published coincidentally in the same journal, the British Medical Journal, pretty sure the exact same week. But, yeah, this one was an actual study. So, again, I was tagged in a lot of posts on social media, a lot of people sending me basically headlines from around the world, New York Times, BBC, um, you name it, everyone covered it. And essentially, the title of a lot of these articles were, new study shows vegetarians and vegans have increased risk of stroke. Again, scary headlines. And obviously, headlines like this right now, given the trend for people moving to plant-based diets mm. are very topical. Mm. So of course the media are going to write on it, write about this stuff. What people need to be aware of is that the media and the journalists are not trained in reading the science. Now, I think we also need to uh, to respect that. Sometimes a scientific paper can get published and it's actually not the necessarily the researchers fault that it hits the media with a certain spin. Right. You know, so Parts of this study are actually very good. It's yeah. it's it's an epidemiology based study, so observational. They looked at people from nineteen uh, ninety three to two thousand and one, okay. and they looked at forty eight odd thousand people. Okay. And this is a population called Exford Oxford Epic Oxford Group, yeah. which is a population that has, has been used in a number of studies. Yeah, and the reason why this po- this population gets used a bit is that they they were able to get quite a lot of vegetarians into this population. So the idea of this particular study was to, to look at this historic database of data. Mm-hmm. So they have this database over from 1993 to 2001, 48,000 people where they know what their dietary framework is. Mm-hmm. And they had three groups. So they had people that eat meat, pescatarians, so just fish eaters, and vegetarians. Key thing with the vegetarians is that Yes, there were vegans in this study, but they were not independently studied. Their data was not studied independently. They were lumped together with vegetarians. Right. So that's the first thing to consider here. So what they did is they, they looked at the data over this period and looked at, okay, how many people suffered from cardiovascular disease and, and stroke or heart attack, ischemic, ischemic, ischemic heart, heart disease, disease yeah. and stroke. Yep. Uh, and also hemorrhagic stroke. Yeah. This is what they were looking at. And so the first thing is to understand: okay, who's the population? Yeah. So we look at the population. We we can see that they lumped vegans in with vegetarians. Now, right. what does that mean? Well, that means that you're potentially diluting the data from the vegans. Yeah. Because it you know it is a different dietary framework. Sure. Now, secondly, they do say the number of, of vegans in the study and and other studies have used this data set before is very small. So it was like around three percent. Of the forty-eight thousand people were vegans, so very small number of vegans mm. in this study. Of of all of the strokes in the study, only twenty-seven were from vegans, right? Right, and there was over a thousand strokes, right? So it was a, you know s- small amount of of vegans lumped together into the vegetarian group. Yeah. The other part of the study that I have a problem with, in terms of how it's interpreted, this is the study. This actually isn't. A, a problem or something the researchers did wrong it's just the people they're studying yeah. the average fiber intake was 20 grams a day it's which tiny. was basically the same as the omnivores and the fish eaters so what were they eating so what does that tell you about these vegetarian and vegan diets yeah
1: they're not eating a whole food diet well I mean cheese and milk Correct
0: is a vegetarian diet. If you think about it, and 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 with a piece of toast and some tea. Yes. So, you know the the these I say tea because I think a lot of these people were from from England. (laughs) um, Went over a few people's head. The anyway, so these guys were probably not doing the vegetarian vegan diet in a super healthy way. Sure. You know, perhaps there was a lot of ethical vegetarians who weren't so concentrated because weren't so focused. I should say on. You know, consuming a whole food, plant-based diet. Also remember this is from 1993 to 2001. Mm. There was less information out there in terms of how to do this in a healthy manner. For sure. So that was another thing to, to consider, but also the fact that the saturated fat consumption in the vegetarian group was well over per day the percentage of calories that the World Health Organization recommend. So that it Again, points to the fact that... Dairy. Exactly.
1: Perhaps they're, they're not having a predominantly plant-based diet, that they're actually eating more calories from animal products that aren't the actual animal. But yeah. yeah, it's 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 complicated. So were the rates of stroke in the vegetarian group, how did they compare well, to Well here's the, the thing. There the was actually groups. less.
0: There was a there was it was actually a lower rate, but then what they did was they controlled for the fact that they believed the vegetarians and vegans lived healthier lifestyles. So this is when controlling gets Ooh. messy. So not only were the population not really an example of a healthy Plant based sort of community eating a whole food diet. Yeah. You know, they weren't consuming much fiber. They had high saturated fat. Yeah. They then went and controlled and they controlled for everything from high blood pressure to smoking, activity, high cholesterol, you know, things like this. So, what they essentially what they're doing is they're saying, okay, our our meat eaters in our study have other unhealthy lifestyles and risk factors. Let's control for that and then see where the data comes out. Mm. So, You know, I I just have problems with the types of people included in the study, Mm. not being representative of a truly healthy whole food plant-based diet. Yeah. And then some of the adjustments for sort of other variables. However, here's the kicker. Mm. Even if none of that matters and none of it exists, which it does. Yeah. These people, I just want to be on record. These were not people eating a healthy plant-based diet. Yeah although millions and millions and millions of people read these headlines around the world and now could be second-guessing a plant-based diet, which is concerning. But even though, what's the main part of this study that didn't hit any headlines? The vegetarians, including the vegans, had a lower risk of heart disease than the omnivores. Heart disease, the incidence of heart disease compared to stroke is so much higher. So even if you ate a terrible, terrible Vegetarian diet, low in fiber, high in saturated fat. Interesting. You would be better off, but that's not the result that hit the headline. That's headlines. not the result. And obviously, mm-hmm. I'm not saying to go and do that. But no, I'm no. saying if we just said, okay, don't worry about the types of people in the study. Don't worry about the the data analysis and the correction for other other lifestyle factors and and cholesterol and blood pressure, and just looked at the data as it stands. Yep. The vegetarians in the diet had lower risk in heart disease there is a higher likelihood of people suffering from heart disease in society and Western populations. Yep. So you would, you'd be better off. Wow. It's
1: amazing, <laughs> mate. This is the thing is like what you just said, right? These researchers who who actually did the study, they don't have control over the headline that ends up on, on the computer screen of millions of people across the world. Hmm. So it's hard to point that you can't point the finger and say this or that, but, but that's why we need to like teach people or you can just do it for us how to actually read this information because scientific studies are very confusing if you get into the like, st- statistical analysis and all these it's super confusing so you know that's why thank god for
0: you doing what you do on Plant I mean, proof mate honestly like mate i've i've got concerns about science in general like looking back at that diabetes study yeah. and and the the conflicts of interest in terms of <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> I think Giuseppe and Gnocchi have also got some serious concerns. <laughs> um, they're agreeing, by the sounds of it. But looking at the way that you can set up a study and create your own definition around reversal of diabetes, and the fact that you know, like you said, if you're not trained to to read these papers, or many people can't even access the full paper. Yeah, that, that that's a very important point. Is that people can read the news, right? But most people can't access these full papers. Or mm. don't have the time or energy. Or they don't have the time or the energy. And the problem is what's happening is that the science can be very easily either misinterpreted or you can have poor science done, yeah. you know, a methodology set up to create a favorable outcome, Yeah. which then with a good PR and marketing campaign, yeah, and it, as long as it's topical and it's something that will generate views and clicks and likes, mm. it's gonna hit the media. So yeah, I don't have any answers actually for that, other than for, you know, people with the very best of intentions to just try and keep looking at the science for what it is and it, and trying to explain it, which is essentially what I'm trying to do in this yeah. crazy book that I'm writing. How is that going? Uh, so I've 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 written it, I've sort of written it, rewritten it. <laughs> added to it yeah. um every day i get questions from people that that make me realize gosh i need to cover that i need yeah. to hit that from that angle yeah so it's kind of working it into a point where i feel like i'm i'm hitting it from from all the right angles yeah um yeah should still be published next year so we'll see
1: so when you're writing this book you You know, you have have an opinion or a belief or or something based off the evidence. What happens when the evidence changes or new things come up? You know, do you feel like you you, your you know ideas are are evolving and adapting, or do you are you you sort
0: of like confident in your stance? Because it's it's, I'm very confident in in my overarching belief, particularly more confident now that I understand planetary health a lot more. Because I feel like that was, that that was a, was, blessing, that was a that, bit of a gap. Yeah. And we just need to acknowledge how lucky we are that the diet that is most healthful for our human body also is most healthful for the planet. Can yeah. you imagine right now yeah. if I said, true, this is the best diet for your health and for your insulin resistance and for managing the complications of diabetes, but at the same time mm. you're going to contribute to destruction of the planet and you're going to contribute to degradation of an environment that future generations may not be able to enjoy mm. yeah that, that, that's tough but sadly
1: there are too many people out there that actually do believe that the best diet for their health and, and they know in their minds that the best diet for their health isn't the best diet for the planet and that's they can justify Their unethical and environmentally unfriendly behaviors because they think it's the best for their health. Yeah.
0: And it's just, you know, that I've spent hours and hours and nights and and sleepless nights thinking and being frustrated by that. But I think it comes back to full circle back to where we talked about understanding and appreciating that not everyone is going to adopt this lifestyle. Mm. And therefore it's even so much more important that if you're conscious of the information that you do, Mm. because you're making up, you're offsetting, Mm. right? And, you know, there's always going to be people doing the opposite and, you know, the opposite is often where the opportunity is. A Mm. lot of this stuff that we're seeing is opportunistic, Mm. right? Because, if everyone's just speaking about the exact same thing yeah you know the opportunities get diluted a bit yeah so you know naturally there will always be opposite views uh thankfully you know i feel like there's a lot of science and a lot of logic and a lot of rational information to to support you know the information that i'm putting into the book yep. so i don't I never have I haven't written anything where I'm like, wow, whatever study comes out and shows the opposite yeah I feel so confident that there's such a body of evidence yep. pointing in that direction that there really couldn't just be one single study that told me otherwise Good that's awesome uh, that's I mean I thought that would be your answer but
1: you know there definitely are people bestselling authors who are writing books. With not with that same mindset, yeah. with the mindset that hey, this is a maybe a little bit of a study I can throw in there and hopefully sell billions of copies of this book. But they
0: know deep down that it's, you know. And I mean, the other half of the book is like, okay, I'm telling you that this is a beneficial way for you to change your diet. It's beneficial for for you. It's beneficial for the planet. And without even being said, it's beneficial for animal welfare. Yeah, but. How do we do it properly? How do we not just say, "Okay, it's easy. How do we understand that people do have difficulties and barriers? How do we understand that people need to understand a basic amount of of nutrition mm. information to do it well mm. right because you know you could you could adopt a, a vegan diet overnight and do it horribly yeah, you know yeah, so I think the Definitely the future for me and, and, and the book, but just in general, I think anyone pushing the plant-based message should be about setting people up for success. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Are you, so you're obviously, you've got this like theoretical part to your book where it's all about the science and understanding why we do the things we do, but then is there like a practical side where it's like,
0: yeah. sort of, this is how to eat? I mean, the the first iteration of the book and what I was working on with Penguin was, a bit more of a lifestyle book. It had it had recipes in it, and it didn't give me enough room to write about the science. Right. Once once you start writing about the science, you need a lot of room. Yeah. My my biggest problem with this book, and still is now, is I have too many words yeah. to, to fit into it. And yeah. and honestly, eighty or ninety percent of of the content is addressing mistruths and and and. Information that's out there, mm. which is not based on the science, that's the sad part. Yeah. Once, once I, I would love to be able to just spend five, six hundred pages on the practical component. Yeah, but understanding the why yeah. and properly understanding why this diet stands up against other diets, mm. and why there might be information out there that shows saturated fats not harmful. Well, what is that information? What science did that come from? Cool. How can I explain that to you so you understand? If there was an agenda there, or you know, is it based on vigorous science? Yeah, and yeah. literally, that takes up so much time. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's well, you, you uh, commenting on and covering the—I don't want to call them lies, but the the misrepresentations—yeah—takes has taken more effort and more time and more words than explaining what to do. But it, I think that's so important because you need to
1: rewire people's brains before you can then give them hey this is what you should do you have to like reverse engineer how did we get here what are we, what are our current mm-hmm. beliefs what are those based on and then you can sort of educate and turn people around yeah, well that's the fear
0: yeah trying to address that fear yeah yeah i'm, so. I'm sure you've nailed it i can't wait to read it Let's when's say. it out well, it will be out in two thousand and twenty. Yeah, in terms of the exact date, I'm not yeah. sure. Sort of around the world and stuff, but hopefully, hopefully, wait. hopefully, middle of twenty twenty. Yeah, we'll awesome. see something.
1: That's so exciting. Yeah, it's a cool project, and your other project you've been working on, the restaurant.
0: Oh yeah, that's awesome. We, um, we've had a couple of good dinners. Might what don't you down do, down mate?
1: Tonight. How busy are you?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, lucky enough have a great team down at the restaurant. Yeah. So, I think people have probably seen we set up a, a restaurant in Bondi called mm-hmm. Eden. Mm-hmm. So I set that up with Tanya, my partner, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, didn't ever think I was going to dip my uh, feet into the hospitality. Yeah. It's exciting, though. Sector. But, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been, you know, a lot of fun, and we've got a great spot in Bondi. Yeah. You know, it seats like 80 people, and it's got a of You've been down. No, I love it. Nice love little it. feel to it. It so, does. Very, um, very
1: beautiful ambiance.
0: And, you know, like I am obviously quite busy, but I've been – I've been pretty focused on getting down there and it's been good to, you know, so many people have been coming in that listen to the podcast. We were down there the other night mm-hmm. and shout out to Rob. Yeah, Happy Rob. birthday, Rob. Yes. You know, Rob came down and, and just meeting people in the community. Yeah. You know, face to face, people that have listened to the podcast, people that have listened to our other podcast. Yeah. You know, it's cool. It is. It's
1: it's amazing. It's It's, you get to... You know, see the people who have been supporting you this whole time, and you get to
0: sort of give them something back. It's like yeah. come in, enjoy a good meal. The food and, is impeccable, and it's way. it's thank you, and it's. I mean, that's a compliment to our chef Claudia, yeah. but um, yeah, it's you know, hearing people talk about listening to the podcast, and and it, whether it's you know had some sort of small effect on their life. You know, you, you see that through social media and tag, and you still see it, mm. but um, from our last episode. But hearing it firsthand, yeah. it, it's sort of has given me a bit of extra drive and energy mm. to perhaps see if I can take the show to the next level. So, Oof. yeah. There's
1: we'll levels see. to this
0: game. Yeah, there's levels. Love it. A lot of the, a lot of the levels are, are to keep myself engaged and, yeah. and um, you know, be inspired by the guests that I have on and, mm. and just to continue loving it. So we'll yeah. see how it evolves. Awesome, man. So, great pleasure having you on, man. Mate,
1: I loved it. We, we did cover a, a wide variety of, of topics, but I think, you know, it's cool for people to sort of get an insight into how our conversations go day to day, you know. Yeah. We do talk about it. I mean, I felt like we yeah, weren't we even recording. Yeah, true. So the only thing that was different this time was um, my mates, where are they? Giuseppe and Gnocchi. I don't know. I had makes... them on my lap
0: last time. Yeah, the boys are tired. Yeah, they're well behaved today. <laughs> get on. Anyway, we'll do it again soon. Mate, thank you so much. Cheers, mate. Well friends, I hope that you found that interesting. I certainly did. Literally, that was that was a conversation that Drew and I would have in private amongst ourselves. A fluid conversation, nothing planned. We we jumped from from here and there and we covered some some topics that I think people often stick clear of. So I hope we, we, we did those topics justice And I hope that what we were talking about Made some sense As I alluded to throughout uh, the conversation I think it's important to note that Just because I or Drew May hold a different opinion to someone That doesn't mean that that I dislike them Or, or, or want conflict I am always open to sitting down with any of the people mentioned or others to to further discuss these ideas and flesh them out with the best available science that we have. It's not about arguing who's right or wrong. I want to look at the facts and I want to be able to put that onto the table so that you can make informed decisions in your life that are not compromised based on any underlying agenda. And that's essentially why the Plant Proof Podcast exists. You know, if we want to expand our minds, we need to take these conversations to places where they are a little uncomfortable. And and I think that we got there today. I look forward to doing it in the future and hopefully having some of these proponents of diets like the ketogenic diet or if it fits your macros or the carnivore diet uh, on the show, and 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 I realise that some of you may be thinking that you know don't give them the platform, but in a controlled manner, if if they do not have the fundamental science to support their argument, which which I certainly have not been able to find, then ultimately all I see happening is an agenda revealing itself, and and I think that these people should be given the opportunity to present the science and i think the public want to hear these conversations maybe a conversation like this will happen in the near future uh, who knows i'm going to leave this one there thank you so much for tuning in and, and being such a, a loyal community such a tightly engaged community there's not a day uh where i where i don't notice how how lucky i am to, to have a community of people who are so thirsty for knowledge. So thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, which I hope you did uh, with Drew, please let us know on social media. And if you get a chance, please leave a review on the Apple podcast app. That always helps. Have a great week. Get outside. Uh, be grateful for the air, the sun, the water, The simple things that we are lucky to to ever experience in the first place will see you in the next episode